We are a citizen organized, a citizen run, a citizen funded initiative. We don't have a single large donor. We're doing this all on our own, almost exclusively by volunteers. We want to start a national dialogue. COVID-19 pandemic has been a unprecedented event as far as Canada, the countries in the world are concerned. The fact that in Canada, people are still afraid. It has not been disclosed uh, to the general public the contents of the uh, material. So in that moment, she framed every unvaccinated person, including her guest on the show, as a danger to public safety. What's interesting also is that nobody can name a single real world vaccine success story where COVID rates went down at a nursing home or a funeral home after the vax rollout. You're in a cancer clinic and you feel abused by everybody because they didn't want to know you. They wanted to know your mask. They wanted to make personal contact with your mask and that was the horror of it. How did we get to this point? A nation that is afraid to let its people judge the truth and falsehood in an open market is a nation that is afraid of its people. That's still where we are in this nation, Canada, because no government, no authority wants to inquire into its handling or mishandling of the last three years response to COVID-19. that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I do. Thank you. Good afternoon, Dr. Davidson. Before we get into your examination proper, could you kindly provide the Commission with an overview of your education, training, and experience. Um, my name is Dion Davidson. I'm a, in summary, I'm a vascular surgeon and critical care doctor. Um, I uh, went to medical school in Saskatchewan. I went on to do uh, eight years of general surgery and vascular surgery training uh, after that. My family and I moved to uh, Nova Scotia here to a relatively smaller town in uh, 2005 uh, with a relatively larger hospital, so a regional hospital that had a vascular surgery uh, program. Um, and I've practiced in Nova Scotia uh, ever since, basically as a community vascular surgeon and ICU doctor. And for the benefit of our audience, what is vascular surgery? Uh, vascular surgery is the, um, the, the surgical procedures, uh, but also a lot of medical management and, and other aspects of uh, diseases that have to do with arteries and veins, for, to, to put it simply. And do you have any other areas of interest uh, with respect to your involvement in medicine beyond what you've just described? Uh, as I said, I'm, uh, I am or I have for most of my career been an ICU doctor as well. So uh, for most of my career, I was served as one of the attending doctors in the, uh, in the ICU at our regional hospital. So I have an interest in critical care, uh, uh, worked in, in that area as well. Um, in addition to 
uh, sort of community vascular surgery, the what we do uh, as vascular surgeons, we do a lot of uh, uh, surgeries on uh, carotid arteries in the neck uh, in order to prevent strokes. We do a lot of surgeries uh, and, and various procedures for arteries in the, uh, in the legs to relieve pain and prevent amputations. Um, and we repair abdominal aneurysms and other types of aneurysms to prevent rupture and, and death. So that's kind of the, the core, I would say, of, of a community vascular surgery practice. So all vascular surgeons do a lot of that. Um, in, in my case, I've also taken a, a special interest in, in what's called chronic venous disease, which is a bit of a different, uh, a different offshoot, kind of a less dramatic offshoot of all that. Um, not life or limb threatening, but certainly very common and, uh, and kind of underserved in the medical community. Um, so those have been my areas of interest. That's what's taken up a, a lot of my career. I've uh, contributed to uh, 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 two different national committees developing guidelines for carotid artery surgery to prevent stroke and, uh, and with respect to chronic venous disease as well. Oh, this is my assumption, but I, I want to get this on the record. As a layperson, when you tell me that you're a vascular surgeon, uh, my presumption is that perhaps there may not be a great many vascular surgeons practicing in the province of Nova Scotia. Now, are you able to tell us? how many vascular surgeons were practicing at the start of the pandemic in early 2020, including yourself? It would have been, it's maybe not quite as simple to answer as you might think, but I, I'll say that at the beginning of the pandemic, there would have been five to six full-time vascular surgeons, maybe four to five full-time vascular surgeons. Um, you know, for, for example, uh, my, my partner in the Annapolis Valley um, is also a general surgeon, so he maybe wouldn't be termed a full-time vascular surgeon, and there was some of the same sort of thing happening in Halifax. So it would be a number, something like that. And that would be to cover vascular surgery for Nova Scotia and PEI. In your practice, how many patients could you expect to treat in the run of a week? Again, not super easy to answer, but uh, I'll say... In terms of new consults and follow-ups in a given week, maybe 50 to 80, something like that, and then maybe another 10 patients uh, I would provide minor surgeries for, such as wound debridements for, um, well, wound debridements, it would be an example, um, some, uh, some minor office procedures, and, um, and then maybe anywhere from one to five bigger surgeries per week that might be sort of planned surgeries during the day and then maybe more urgent surgeries at, uh, during the kind of evening or night, nighttime. And do you have any experience as an educator? Um, yes. Uh, I would say I've spent, I've spent a lot of time in education of uh, nurses, medical students, uh, general surgery residents, family medicine residents as well in terms of Lectures and then just um, you know for their uh, for their electives um, you know accompanying me in clinic and in the operating room and kind of how we do as doctors is teach as you as you interact as you're working. Okay. Now, at the beginning of the pandemic, let's say early 2020, what had been your plan for both yourself and your family uh, with respect to your professional future in Nova Scotia? Yeah, before the pandemic, we were uh, we were dug in. We we had been there 
for six, no, I guess about 15 years at that point. Um, my wife and I, and we had raised our three daughters there. Um, I was a really um, hardworking vascular surgeon. Uh, you know, my career and my profession took up uh, uh, obviously most of my life, and uh, my my wife. Uh, became a prominent uh, community leader and, and businesswoman, um, including helping the Nova Scotia Health with um, efforts such as recruiting doctors into the community and things like that, uh, a lot of other volunteer-type type work. Um, two of my daughters still uh, live in, or were still in the Annapolis Valley at that time. So the, before the pandemic, we had no plans to ever go anywhere. We were dug into Nova Scotia, specifically the Indianapolis Valley. Our plan was to stay there forever. Okay, and we'll get into your experience throughout the pandemic in a moment. But I just want to bring us up to the present and ask you, Dr. Davidson, what are your plans professionally for yourself and your plans for your family currently? Well, I've, re I've resigned my position um, kind of at the tail end now of a... <laughs> A long and awkward process of resigning, but uh, um, and uh, my wife and our youngest daughter and I are are moving out of Nova Scotia. Why is that, Doctor Davidson? We're moving because, I mean, to put it simply, um, we're moving because of the of the public health response to the COVID pandemic. We'll come back to that now. Can you speak to any experience or qualifications you have with respect to the review and interpretation of medical research literature? Yeah, um, I'm not I'm not an epidemiologist, but I'm a doctor, and you know, the, a, a major aspect of medical school education is the concept of evidence-based medicine. Um, we're we're taught uh, quite extensively from a very early point. Um, how to interpret scientific papers. Uh, we're talking about research methods and biostatistics um, so that we can, throughout our careers, be able to look at the scientific literature and know uh, what to look for in terms of uh, quality of scientific literature, what it's trying to say, what it's actually saying, what data means. Um, so that's a, a, a major component of, of medical school education and, and Almost every doctor, almost every day, has to do some, to some extent, has to um, assess the medical literature and interpret it. Um, in addition, I took uh, uh, some additional biostatistics classes uh, during my surgical training. And um, yeah, I mean, maybe no more than any other specialist, but uh, it's, certainly, it's certainly part of, of what we normally do as doctors is, is uh, review scientific literature. Do you have any specific education or training with respect to medical ethics? It'd be the same answer. I, I guess the short answer is not in, not in addition to what we what we are taught as doctors from a very early point before we're doctors, the, the very early point in medical school and all through medical school. Uh, principles of medical ethics are uh, are are strongly emphasized, and. I mean, not only that, but but they come up every day and with every patient to, cert, to a certain extent. So my, you know, I'm not, I'm, I also don't have a PhD in philosophy, but I would say that that uh, you know I'm I'm very knowledgeable about the the basic premises of medical ethics. 
Can you talk about the concept of informed consent as it applies to the practice of medicine? Yeah, informed consent is a major cornerstone of, of medical ethics. And, um, it's, you know, I don't know, maybe it's more obvious to some than others, but um, obviously it, it is a principle that we never, as doctors, ever, ever force a medical intervention on someone. Um, history is replete with examples of times where doctors have done that, and um, you know that that those those very sad episodes in history are sort of in the background as we talk about consent. Um, consent needs to be uh, free, free of coercion, and informed in order to mean anything. And does that principle apply to all medical interventions in Canada? Does it apply? I mean, historically it would have applied, I would say. And I, you know, one would think, and I think we all would have said before the pandemic that the threshold for even considering countervening the ethic of informed consent should be extremely high. As we entered the pandemic in early 2020, what was your understanding of the danger posed to public health in this province by COVID-19? Well, I was, I was as concerned as anybody else about COVID-19. I mean, similar to Dr. Lebranus' uh, testimony, you know, uh, in, in early 2020, none, nobody knew much of anything about this virus. And, except that it was really serious and, uh, and that it could be a catastrophe. So I was very concerned about it. I took it very seriously. Um, I um, you know, started to work with other doctors in our hospital. Again, a lot of this will, will sound familiar from Maris's testimony, but uh, in um, uh, trying to learn as much as we could about it with the limited information that, that we had at the time, and then trying to prepare for these waves of critically ill COVID patients that surely were going to be coming to our door. So that took up, uh, that concern and, and fear took up and, and trying to prepare, um, you know, many months going into the, through the summer for sure. Okay, I'm, I'm going to touch on something you just said, uh, or perhaps we can expand on it. So you indicated that you're very concerned, like many people were during the early stages of the pandemic. What was your observation during the early stages of the pandemic regarding the allocation of in-hospital resources? Well, we, I think we all, again, we were all very concerned. We didn't have much data, but we were concerned enough early on that we all agreed that we needed to be ready and uh, that it was probably appropriate to slow the hospital down as much as possible. So one thing that was certainly very prominent in our hospital, which has a relatively big surgery department, is that elective surgeries were, um, were halted for months. Um, so elective means you know, surgeries that aren't urgent um, were just deferred, put on hold, not done. Now, when you say surgeries that were not urgent, is that the same as surgeries that were not important? Or are those two different things? Yeah, certainly two different things, yeah. So could an elective yeah. surgery still be an important surgery? Oh, for sure, yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, no surgeon should be doing any surgery they don't, they don't think is an important surgery to do. Okay. So 
You've discussed the allocation of in-hospital resources. Shift gears a little bit. What were your observations in hospital with respect to COVID-related illness during the initial stages of the pandemic? Yeah, again, and, uh, you know, similar to, to uh, what Eris was saying, um, we were geared up and spun up. We um, were getting ready. Uh, I was part of sort of teams of, of uh, people that where we were trying to develop these protocols about how we would safely intubate patients in respiratory distress and safely get them to the ICU, um, uh, including the possibility of emergency surgical airways if, if that was going to be needed. Um, and uh, really, certainly in the early months, there was very little um, of that. Uh, very few, num very small numbers of critically ill COVID patients at first. Um, it's hard for me to kind of remember the exact timeline, but certainly for the first several months, there was a lot more sort of preparing than there was actually looking after critically ill COVID patients. And, uh, and I think you, you just referenced critically ill COVID patients. How about during the initial months of the pandemic, COVID admissions generally? I wouldn't have been involved. Um, I would only be involved um, if they were ICU patients. Okay. So there probably were some. My, my impression was that, again, for several months, it wasn't nearly the numbers that we feared that it would be, uh, even the, the, the less sick. Okay. So you had spoken earlier about your, your significant apprehensions at the front end of the pandemic. Did your level of apprehension or your areas of concern evolve over time? And if so, how and why did they evolve? Well, certainly. I mean, as you know, with many other people, as, as the spring turned into the fall, we had more data. And it became evident pretty quickly that, um, uh, that the, again, the, the virus was serious. And um, it could be very serious for certain people. But we were getting a very clear picture of who was most at risk. And as we've heard, Age was the major factor for that. Um, comorbidities such as obesity and diabetes played a role as well, but age was certainly the major, the major risk factor. And I, I feel like that was becoming very clear, certainly as 2020 turned into 2021. So, so I was becoming, I guess, less, less concerned that the virus was going to be a world catastrophe, um, still taking it seriously, but but uh, but less concerned about that. And um, where, where you're talking about age being a, a significant factor, is that the idea that Dr. Milburn and Dr. Lavranos described as age stratification of risk as it relates to COVID-19? Is that the concept? Yes, exactly. Yeah, this, this uh, you know, the concept that if you're a healthy child, I mean, there's no such thing as zero in medicine, but if you're a healthy child, your risk of, of a bad outcome from COVID approaches zero. If you're 80 years old, you're at much higher risk, like a thousand-fold risk. Okay. Uh, what's your understanding of the risk for uh, a healthy adult, somebody who wouldn't be cl medically classified as elderly, if that's an appropriate classification? Uh, again, I mean, by now, there's very good data, even even on a decade-by-decade by, by decade basis. Um, it, it's, it'd be hard for me to give you a number, but, uh, you know, for the average healthy 40-year-old, you know, you're still 
you know, your, your case fatality, certainly your infection fatality uh, number is, is low, uh, less than 1%. Is that one percent uh, relative to infections, or one percent relative uh, to the population? Infection, certainly, IFR infection fatality rate. Um, even the case fatality rate was probably be about that. I don't want to overstate it, but sure. Okay, so I believe that you said a few moments ago that uh, the risk posed to children is is close to zero. Did I hear you correctly? Yep. Okay. In light of that uh, that that perspective. What was your sense of locking down schools or locking down society generally? Well, yeah, that was, that was my first major crisis moment, I, I would say. So um, like everybody else or most people, I understood and probably even supported the idea of two weeks to flatten the curve. Um, but even then, and certainly as that became two months to flatten the curve and and extended longer, I was increasingly distressed about the idea of wide society lockdowns. And um, for all the reasons that I'm sure, even at that time, let alone now, would be obvious to everybody in this room, and, and it boggled my mind why uh, public health wasn't discussing the, the potential dangers, not potential dangers, the dangers of wide society lockdowns. Uh, in terms of rationalizing why they were why they were uh, recommending that, um, uh, you know the, the the downsides are obvious. And you know again, Eris talked about this. You've heard it before, but the the missed cancer screening, the missed cancer diagnoses, the the patients uh, staying at home and not seeing their family doctor to manage their diabetes and their blood pressure, all of the strict health downsides should have been obvious. And then the society downsides, patient, um, you know, children not going to school, not getting the development that they get from going to school, um, you know, people, uh, older people dying uh, alone and away from their loved ones. Um, again, it was obvious to me, and I have no special insight into this sort of thing. I know it was obvious to many people why it wasn't being publicly discussed. Um, it was, it was, was very distressing to me and why month after month it was decided that this one virus, which was, was now just one more way among a thousand other ways that we could die in life, why that one virus was, was the only thing that public health was concerned with. Um, I just didn't understand that at all, and it really distressed me. In your professional medical opinion, was there any medical or scientific evidence that you were aware of during that time that, that suggested that these ongoing lockdowns uh, should have been or remained implemented? Not on an ongoing basis. Um, you know, again, we were getting more and more data about who was at risk and who wasn't. Um, the, uh, the downsides of lockdowns, uh, if they weren't obvious before, I think were becoming more evident. Uh, so certainly not on an ongoing basis. There were um, you know, preeminent, very prominent PhD epidemiologists from Harvard, Oxford, Stanford, who took a step to organize and uh, gather other preeminent uh, PhDs and, and other researchers and scientists from around the world to suggest that uh, wide society lockdowns were a bad idea. And, and they based this on very older, uh, very old uh, planning that uh, before COVID, um, somewhat 
further back in time, the approach to pandemics, it, it had been agreed, would be focused protection of those uh, at most risk. It was only with COVID that was actually a, a, this new idea that you had to shut down the entire society because of this one virus. Um, and, uh, and their ideas were made a lot of sense to me. I didn't understand why they were being demonized in, in, in the public and in, uh, you know, among this new public health establishment and in the media. Um, and then as time wore on, we, we had glimpses into what other jurisdictions were doing. Countries like Sweden, states like Florida and Texas were not widely shutting down or, or uh, you know, they were undertaking more humane versions of that, again, more focused and shorter lockdowns. And, uh, and their age-adjusted mortalities were no worse. In some cases, they were better than areas like New York or California that were, um, or Nova Scotia. Uh, at least later on, that were, um, that were undertaking these draconian lockdowns. Were you aware uh, of any debate or discussion happening within either, either in hospital amongst your colleagues uh, and, and uh, leadership or in the public health sphere in Nova Scotia uh, reg regarding whether these ongoing lockdowns were appropriate. Was it, was it a matter of discussion and debate that you were aware of? Not, well, as I said, I was actually very disappointed that it wasn't a matter of public debate and it wasn't even anything that public health was bringing up, um, which I would have thought would have been public health's job. Um, so certainly not at that level. In terms of otherwise, I mean, other than me just grumbling and complaining and others sort of agreeing, you know, my colleagues around me sort of agreeing that there would be downsides, um, there really wasn't a lot of this discussion about it, not nearly enough, in my opinion. So as, as time wore on, <laughs> you've just discussed uh, your views on the lockdowns. As time wore on, did, did your concerns uh, begin to evolve or, or, or did you have other concerns? Um, well, I had other concerns. I, you know, elective surgeries don't apply so much to vascular surgery. A lot of what we do is uh, is more, well, is life or limb threatening more immediately, if not emergently. So, um, you know, I was still operating. I still had my practice was was continuing. Um, and then in addition to all that, I was trying to help prepare and, and trying to learn more about COVID. So I was very busy. Um, I, I carried on. I, I hoped that public health knew what they were doing in terms of the, of the lockdowns. But um, as time went on, I was just more and more suspicious of that. Um, and I'm not sure if this is, if that answers your question or not, but, but nope. that's how that evolved. Absolutely. Um, how about, uh, based on your education, training, and experience, and your understanding of clinical, clinical literature, uh, did, how did you feel about uh, the vaccine rollout and or the implementation of vaccine mandates? Yeah, that was, that, so that was the next point of concern for me. So when the, the vaccine, uh, the vaccines were, were being developed, um, what one, uh, you know, I remember being somewhat concerned at the speed at which it was happening. As you've heard, it would normally take multiple years, five years, 10 years minimum to get a vaccine to the, to the point of new pathogen to public rollout. Um, you know, the, the Donald Trump's administration um, authorized the Operation Warp Speed so that 
And the whole idea of that was that there weren't going to be these normal regulatory processes. They were going to cut the red tape so that these vaccines could could be developed more quickly, um, which is great if everything goes well. But that means, by definition, you don't have the long-term data, especially in terms of safety. So I had some concern about that. The randomized trials came out. And uh, to be honest, again, I, uh, I was busy. I scanned them. I didn't read them in retrospect, I did not read them critically enough, but they seem to be saying good things about the mRNA vaccines. And uh, and then public health, obviously, was all in. They were immediately safe and effective. It was um, it was amazing the confidence with which they could tell us that these were these were safe and effective vaccines based on two randomized trials and a couple of months of of, uh, of data. But again. I was busy and I was naive. I, sh I should have questioned things more at that time, but I assumed, I hoped that the powers that be knew what they were doing in terms of pushing these vaccines. So I, I myself, I got vaccinated. I got the two primary um, uh, vaccinations, mRNA vaccinations in early um, 2021. Yeah. I'm just going to ask you one question about what you said. You talked about cutting the red tape and pushing the vaccines out, uh, and, and you mentioned two months of, of data, trial data. Uh, with your experience as a physician and a surgeon, and you also indicated, I should have read the studies more carefully, uh, based on your experience and where we are today, do you believe that that was a responsible statement, a medically responsible statement or a socially responsible statement to characterize those interventions as safe and effective? No, I don't think. I, th I think that's an irresponsible way to, um, to describe almost any medical intervention, let alone a brand new technology that had been studied in two randomized trials with a couple of months of data. Um, we, never, we never talk about medical interventions like that. I never sit down with a patient who um, has a, a problem, and I have a surgery that maybe could fix that problem. I hope it would. I, I think it. I, I think it will. I never just sit down with them or stand up with them and say, "This is safe and effective. Do it." That, that's never how we talk about things as doctors ever. You talk to the patient about what's happening with them, what their options are, what, and maybe even I give a recommendation. Um, but I also talk to them about their, uh, the, the risks of what I'm proposing and, and the potential benefits. And it's always, always up to the patient. And if the patient decides against what I'm recommending, you stick with them and you try something else. You, ne you never just say, this is safe and effective. Do this. Take this. It's never how we talk about medical interventions. Well, I, and thank you for that, doctor. Uh, a logical corollary to what you've just said is, or, or uh, the next logical question then, given what you've just expressed to the commission, how did you feel about the mandates themselves when the vaccines actually became mandated in this yeah. province? Well, so that, that was the next, the next issue. Um, it's one thing to heavily promote uh, a medical intervention like that to the public. Um, and, you know, there's arguments to be made, certainly, that that, that that shouldn't have happened. To then force people to take that intervention is a whole new level. And, um, and I couldn't, 
I really couldn't comprehend that the discussion was even being undertaken. By then, we had even more data about what was happening with the virus, and, and it was serious. The virus was serious. I'm not a COVID denier. I looked, I eventually, later on, helped look after extremely sick patients in the ICU who had COVID. Um, and uh, so I, I don't deny that for a relatively small number of people, uh, it is a very serious disease and it can cause death. There was no doubt about that. But again, by then, we had much more data about who was at risk and who wasn't. Um, we had much more data about the magnitude of, of mortality that, that uh, COVID was bringing us. Um, and even at that point that mandates were being discussed, we were starting to get data about how the vaccines did little or nothing to reduce transmission of the disease. So as Eris was saying earlier, in order to even contemplate a mandate where you're forcing someone to take a medical intervention on pain of losing their job or their uh, being able to participate in society as they normally would, in order to even think about that, it would have to be an infectious disease situation where the, uh, the pathogen is so serious and the intervention is so safe and so effective that you can then contravene this, this extremely important ethic of informed and free consent. So at that point, it did not seem that any of those criteria were being met. Um, the, the data was becoming more clear to the extent that it was being admitted on American national television by the CDC and Anthony Fauci that the vaccines were, first of all, losing their effectiveness, even in contracting COVID fairly early, within four or five months. We all saw the 95% effective go down to 50% effective over the next few months. But, but more importantly, they were admitting that they did little or nothing to reduce uh, transmission of the virus. And so then, in my mind, and I challenge anybody to tell me how this cannot be, the, the whole argument for even considering forcing vaccination on someone is null and void. Changing topics here a little bit, Doctor. Uh, as the vaccines were rolled out, and as we got into a vaccine mandate situation here in Nova Scotia, did you have any direct or indirect experience with adverse events in your medical practice with respect to the COVID-19 vaccinations? Yes, I did. Um, and, you know, just to clarify, the term is not adverse event due to vaccination. Okay. The term is adverse event following vaccination or following immunization. And the whole point there is that it's extremely difficult to prove that any adverse event is because of a vaccination. But that's part of the point of encouraging, or what we sh should have been doing, is encouraging people to report adverse events happening after. And there was not the sort of burden of proof for um, uh, healthcare professionals, for example, nurses or doctors, to know that an adverse event was because of the vaccination. We're, we were supposed to, we are supposed to be um, reporting adverse events, whether we think they have any relationship or whether we can sort of explain any relationship or not. Um, but uh, but I, I certainly had firsthand experience of, uh, of at least, I have to be careful about patient personal health information, but um, life-threatening and many more uh, cases of more minor 
uh, thrombotic events shortly after vaccination. Um, and uh, when I when I first saw those, that was my first introduction into the uh, into the online adverse events reporting system that uh, that you heard about. I must say, I think Eris left, but he must be many orders of magnitude smarter than me because if it. I don't know how you could get through one of those reports in five minutes. I mean, it took me 45 minutes. Um, it, it took me 10 minutes just to figure out the links on the on the website to try to get to the five-page PDF that you'd have to fill out. Um, it was I found it. I found it, and I spoke to many other people that agreed with me. A very cumbersome, very awkward process to uh, report an adverse event occurring after a vaccination. Would it, would it be your opinion that the way that the reporting system was set up, that it, it could potentially impair uh, the reporting of adverse events or otherwise inhibit the reporting of adverse events? Yes. And in addition to that, um, is the whole, the whole issue of uh, communication with us as healthcare professionals. We were relentlessly bombarded with... Uh, how great the vaccines were, that they were safe and effective, safe and effective a thousand times a day, this oversimplification of this new medical intervention. Um, and uh, and, and um, informed by our various regulatory bodies, the College of Physicians and Surgeons in my case, that if we did not uh, publicly voice uh, support or if we publicly voiced anything other than support of public health's um, statements about that, that we uh, would be disciplined or that we would face uh, disciplinary measures. So not only is the, the mechanics of reporting the adverse event very cumbersome and time-consuming, the overall messaging, I can tell you, was not be sure to look out for these adverse events. I think I saw one email uh, during those years. And again, that was after the newspaper article that you, that you heard about, um, that, uh, that it sort of felt like public health was forced to say something about this adverse events reporting system. Um, so every day, relentless, vaccines are safe and effective. Maybe one message about reporting adverse events. I'm going to ask you this in a general way, Dr. Davidson. Is it your opinion that the messaging that you just described had a dissuasive effect on the reporting of adverse events. I don't know how it couldn't have. And I'm gonna back up just a little bit. You had mentioned thrombotic events. For those of us who aren't physicians, what is a thrombotic event? And, and just so everyone can remember, Dr. Davidson, uh, I believe your evidence was you observed an increase in thrombotic events as an adverse event post-vaccination. Is that correct? That's correct. And what is a thrombotic event? Uh, simply put, it's uh, blood clots forming in, in, uh, in blood vessels. In my case, um, you know, I saw a couple in arteries, but more so in veins. So much so that I, it, it did lead me to change my practice, uh, my office practice, where I provide uh, relatively minor um, venous procedures uh, to uh, advising patients about more anticoagulation or, or medications that would reduce their risk of clots in the superficial veins and the deep veins, which could potentially be life-threatening. Did you prescribe interventions 
in connection with uh, with adverse events post vaccination? Um, not not specifically procedures for those clots. You don't really do procedures in the okay. midst of an acute clot, but just the uh, the, the additional blood thinners, okay. anticoagulants to prevent. So prescriptions. Yeah. Okay. And I've just been uh, told that we're nearing the conclusion of our time, so I'll try to uh, get through the rest of this quickly. But as a physician and surgeon, with I believe, uh, based on what you had said, uh, that you came to the, I think you came into the province in 2005, uh, by my counting, that would give you approximately 18 years experience as a physician and surgeon in Nova Scotia, correct? Yes. Yeah, okay. So as a physician and surgeon with 18 years experience practicing in Nova Scotia specifically, is it your opinion that the implementation of vaccine mandates was a necessary public safety measure? Vaccine mandates were an unnecessary public safety measure. Okay. And similarly, was it your opinion or is it your opinion that the implementation of vaccine mandates was a reasonable public safety measure? No, they were not a reasonable public safety measure. <laughs> Final question, Dr. Davidson. You indicated that based on your experience, you were leaving the practice of medicine in Nova Scotia. You shared with us uh, what I believe any layperson would believe is a fairly impressive history and list of credentials. What I'd like to ask you, sir, is what does your departure from medicine mean for Nova Scotians? It's a difficult question to answer. I mean, certainly, you know, it would be true to say that I, I have been a hardworking community vascular surgeon. I do a lot of call coverage, or I did before I was in the process of resigning, uh, do a lot of call coverage in terms of frequency of call coverage, um, uh, covering the western zone of Nova Scotia for general uh, vascular surgical sort of uh, concerns and urgencies and emergencies. Um, as I said, I was one of the attendings in the ICU. Um, so I had very busy practice. Uh, I was a real hard worker, uh, for sure. And, uh, and so, you know, when someone like that resigns, it certainly leaves at least somewhat of a hole. And, uh, you know, in my case specifically, um, so it, it means that the remaining vascular surgeons, first of all, until they can find a replacement, um, will be working harder. Uh, there is a shortage of vascular surgeons around the world and across Canada, and it, I don't know how long it will take to recruit another vascular surgeon. Um, patients will wait longer. Um, I think in particular some um, areas that uh, unfortunately are chronically underserved, like um, uh, diabetic foot infections uh, and some of the aspects of chronic venous disease that I was talking about that I, I, I sort of spent more time on. Uh, those patients, I think, are really are, are going to be quite ill-served until uh, and, and whether um, that gap is filled. Um, yeah. All right. Those are my questions, sir. I will turn you over to the commission. Thank you. Thank you very much for your testimony. I have a question. I realize that uh, you're very busy, so you didn't have the time maybe to do the critical analysis of the literature, so you decided to take on the vaccine. Was it because you were 
influenced by the environment or is it something that you wanted to do initially because you wanted maybe to protect vulnerable pa patient in a hospital? I'd, I'd say a little, a little of both. Um, I mean, <laughs> you know, again, I just sort of trusted what my bosses and elders were telling me, right? It, I mean, ostensibly, mm -hmm. public health should know more about all this stuff than I do. And uh, even though some of it didn't make sense at various junctures, uh, at times I just sort of, it's much easier just to accept what you're being told and do what you're told uh, rather than, than, you know, do your own research, do your own reading. Um, so we were told the vaccines were safe and effective and we should get them, so I just got them at that time. Yeah. Not since. <laughs> and did you did you encourage people in your family to also get vaccinated? Um, no, I wouldn't say so. Um, you know, certainly, I, I uh, I'm just trying to think back to that time period. I didn't necessarily encourage my wife to get vaccinated. I left it up to her. Um, and uh, I, I think I might have encouraged my parents. Um, to at least consider it. I would never, I don't remember ever being, you know, so, um, uh, I was never aggressive about it, but I think I may have encouraged my parents to consider it at the time. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for your testimony. Uh, just a few questions. You spoke a little bit about the cumbersome reporting process uh, for adverse events, and I'm just wondering if you have any uh, thoughts or recommendations on how that process could be improved upon? Yeah, I mean, not specifically. Um, along with all the other things, I'm not, I'm not a, you know, IT specialist, but uh, it seems to me it would be quite simple to make the process, that the mechanics of that process a lot more straightforward, first of all, in terms of here's what you click on, here's a few boxes to click, um, now you can scan a QR code. I mean, surely, th you know, things like that could be brought brought uh, into play. But even more importantly, again, more importantly than that, I would say, would be the overall messaging, that this is our responsibility um, as healthcare workers to look out for these adverse events. We don't have to prove that they're because of the vaccination. The whole point is that this is a screening system. Um, and that, and along with every email that said that the vaccines are safe and effective should have been a line right underneath saying, and by the way, it's your responsibility to look out for adverse events and report those as well. So those would be two, I think, fairly simple recommendations moving forward. So would that include uh, maybe part of the education um, and training that doctors receive? Yeah, I suppose, but I mean, it wouldn't take much education and training. It's like one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and one other question. Uh, you mentioned that you have resigned and that you're leaving Nova Scotia. I'm just wondering if there is something now that Nova Scotia could do that would prevent you from leaving. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess a complete turnaround of public health and its uh, sort of attitude toward toward the public and, you know, some overtures that, that uh, they're going to seek to be you know, more holistic and 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 uh, humanistic about their approach to to things like this. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm pretty far down the road of leaving, but you never know. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I have a couple of questions, Doctor. Thank you for your your testimony. 
First question was, um, do you know of any other professionals currently leaving the province of Nova Scotia for these types of reasons? Um, it's, a, it's a very good question. I, 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 at least a couple have left. Um, but also, I know of dozens that have, um, you know, I heard the term quiet quit recently, so I know of dozens of doctors and nurses who have uh, uh, taken leaves of absences, have uh, uh, down, downsized their practice so that they're, uh, and, you know, some of these are people that are, um, that were uh, basically fired for not getting vaccinated. And even now, two years later, even now, we have all this data about how that, that the vaccines don't reduce transmission. Even to this day, you can't work as a healthcare worker in Nova Scotia Health unless you got those two vaccines two years ago. So I know of, sorry, just to, I, so I know of dozens of nurses and doctors who uh, aren't working because of that. Uh, a few that actually even got vaccinated, but just like me, just got sick of things, and so they've retired early, um, are in the process of moving away. So I guess the short answer is yes, I know of others. Yeah. Um, this question might seem odd. Um, how much did you know about mRNA technology prior to you taking the vax yourself? Not much at all. Um, you know, as I said, scanned the RCTs that were done at that time, and then, you know, maybe a, a quick internet search here and there about what this technology was, and and that was about it. But you were you aware of it being a novel technology to be used on on um, on the population? The well, M mRNA technology, that the technology, the idea is not new per se. I mean, it was. I don't know if it was 10 years ago or whatever that it was sort of came about and it's been used in very limited ways over those years. So it wasn't new to, in that way. But um, I was aware that it was, this was obviously the biggest application that had been made uh, of mRNA technology. And in that sense, it was new. It's just um, the reason I asked that question is because you're right, as I understand from previous testimony, the mRNA technology has been around for quite some time, but this, as I understand, was the first time it was introduced in mass to the human population. Yeah, that was my understanding as well. Yeah, and considering that, in that it had never been done before, um, you, you would have thought that there would not just be the standard review process in place, but it would be an additional process. <laughs> One would have thought. <laughs> I, you know, I, I have another question that's a very short one, but it's, and, and I'm, I can't imagine you can a answer this, but my question to you is why? Why did this happen? Why did we, we you know, and I, I, I think you were here earlier and listening to the testimony, but we heard from Dr. Braden about the, uh, this is my words, not hers, the breakdown in the process from conceptual science to production of product, to putting it in arms, and there seemed to be a breakdown in the entire system from top to bottom. Even even after it went into arms, the the uh, reporting of adverse reactions or even the reporting of uh, efficacy seemed to all break down on this. Yeah. Um, how did that happen? How did that happen? <laughs> why or why did it happen? Perhaps those are two different questions. The, 
from what I understand, there was somewhat of a new public health elite that emerged early in the pandemic. And they became obsessed with this one virus with some good reason. It was, it was bad. To the negation of literally every other public health concern. And then it became political and then it became tribal. So that you were either on team coronavirus is going to kill us all and everything and anything that we need to do to stop it or that could even possibly stop it is justified or you're on team critical of all that. And, uh, and I think just m many public health officials chose their team, many doctors chose their team, and they just stuck with it no matter what the data said. Um, and that carried through the, the entire uh, pandemic. Um, people chose their team, they chose their tribe, and they just stuck to their guns no matter what else came up. Thank you. Sorry, I just have one more question that I forgot to ask you. Um, how long did you train to become a vascular surgeon? Uh, so medical school for me was four years. Uh, it's for most people four years. And, um, and then I uh, trained in general surgery first and then vascular surgery. That was a total of eight years after that. Yeah. So 12 years, my, uh, from is my math okay there? the beginning of medical school till the end of my surgical training was, was 12 years. And I did you know, four years at university before medical school, so 16, a lot of years. <laughs> and, and did I hear you correctly say that there's a, not really a shortage of vascular surgeons, but that you are in short supply? Yeah, there's a shortage of vascular surgeons. I mean, there's a shortage of any number of specialties around the okay. world and doctors in general, right? But certainly, specifically vascular surgery, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you, Dr. Davison. We have... Giver homemaker presently. Would you tell us a little bit about your family? Yes, uh, my husband and I uh, have lived here for 22 years. This summer, we have two adult children living with him, with us <laughs> currently. One is our 28-year-old son who has minor special needs, and our daughter who has Down syndrome, and she will be 25 this summer. Back in uh, late 2019, early 2020. Uh, can you tell us about your day-to-day -day life for you and your family? Sort of what was your daily routine? Certainly. Uh, my husband was um, going to work in office in uh, the town of Summerside. Um, and he would drop our daughter off daily at a day program for handicapped adults, which she attended from roughly 8.30 to 3 o'clock every day. I was basically the glue to hold this all together. Um, I believe our son had just moved back in with us and was trying to get into the armed forces to train as a financial officer. How long had your daughter been in this day program? In the day program, since she graduated from high school at age uh, almost 18, so it would have been several years earlier, three years, I guess, roughly. So she knew the routine pretty well and, and the people that worked there? Yeah. Absolutely. It was a very small program, and so there were only uh, small numbers of people in the program, um, she became princess to them very quickly. She was a very young client compared with most of the uh, attendees. And you said your daughter has Down syndrome, correct? Yes, she does, as well as some other uh, comorbid uh, uh, diagnoses. She has uh, sensory integration dysfunction 
And although she's never been assessed, we think she's inherited some of my husband's diagnoses. We see her ticking and she doesn't have great attention skills. <laughs> so we think she has ADHD as well. Would you say that routine is pretty important for her? Absolutely. Um, any medical professional would attest, and any parent of a special needs child or an adult would attest to the fact that they need predictability uh, because they don't uh, cope with change. They don't learn as quickly new routines. So any threat to that routine uh, over uh, a longer period of time can really compromise uh, their stress levels. So in 2020, when PEI began implementing COVID-19 measures, uh, did that impact your daughter's routine? Oh, absolutely. She wasn't allowed to go to her day program for quite a while. Uh, I began to see uh, her having signs of mild depression. Uh, she would um, occasionally have crying jags or be overly sensitive to normal comments being made in our day-to-day -day lifestyle. Um, she just seemed to be more mopey, if <laughs> that's a, a good English word to use. Um, yeah, yeah. And, of course, that affected us as her parents. Um, generally, when you have a special needs child, you're already stressed to the max. Uh, there's, there's a lot of detail involved in that, which I won't bore you with. But um, shortly after we moved here, for example, the IWK, that would be 22 years ago, sent us a letter saying that, Anybody who had a child who'd had open heart or brain surgery um, would be traumatized and would become hypervigilant about their health, their, uh, their mental state, you know, their emotions more than the average parent. So not only were we dealing with uh, the grief associated and the stress associated with having a special needs delayed child, but the medical condition that she had been through or the surgery had compromised our state of mind as well. So, so if anything happens to her that affects her emotional state or, or her physical health, both of us are deeply affected by that. That's just been since the get-go. So to be clear, your daughter had had uh, heart surgery very young? Yes, at 10 weeks of age, yeah. And in yeah. your your observation was that this sort of information pamphlet was correct for you and your husband? The impact was oh, that? absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It gave us a reason to pat ourselves on the back because we, we knew then we weren't crazy. <laughs> So every time any sort of slight change or, or health issue, it sort of made you hypervigilant, it was kind of an yep. increased impact. Oh, yeah. The slightest little thing. And, you know, it certainly eyes her mother um, because I had been uh, been taking care of her more hands-on than, of course, my husband was because he was the breadwinner and still is. So it uh, definitely affected me, and I know it affected my husband. And how long did these impacts, the, these changes in your daughter's mood uh, last? Um, there's still some residual effects um, to this day, you know, a couple of years after she was able to go back to her program. If we have a snow day or if there's any kind of cancellation that's out of the normal routine, um, she seems a little concerned, a little uh, anxious. And I often have to reassure her that it's just because of the snow and they just cancel schools because it's not dangerous to drive, et cetera, et cetera. And then she seems reassured. But I don't remember her ever questioning that. In fact, previous to this time, she would go, hoo-hoo, day off, you know, like a typical teenage kid was. <laughs> so since the pandemic, you've noticed that if there's a change in routine or if the if there's a cancellation in her day program, it's more stressful yes. for her. Yeah, yeah. If it's out of the normal routine, like, you know, um, Christmas holidays, um, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think what else they get off regularly. I guess that's about it, really. Um, and she's so excited about Christmas that that was never a big issue for us so um, or for her. 
but definitely now I see a difference in her behavior. Yeah, there's snow. And it's funny, I just noticed that this winter, I don't know if I was even cognizant of it last year. We were too concerned about other issues, of course, you know. Um, but it's definitely affected, definitely affected her. Um, I'd say her state of mind isn't, hasn't completely recovered. No. And you mentioned your husband's diagnosis. Um, yes. Can you speak about yeah. that? Yeah, absolutely. He was diagnosed several years ago at a private clinic in the U.S., uh, with ADHD, I'm just looking at my notes, um, a learning disability, OCD, post-concussion syndrome, uh, a tick disorder, and a mood disorder. Um, he does deal with some chronic anxiety on top of all that. And um, he was given some trials with uh, pharmaceuticals since that diagnosis. But what we discovered was, for example, for one of the diagnoses, if he was given a drug, um, it would exacerbate the symptoms of one of the other diagnoses. So we learned over several months and, well, actually a couple of years that that wasn't going to work. So we've developed uh, kind of a naturopathic approach to it of supplements, uh, vitamins, uh, exercise, fresh air, um, and it seems to kind of keep everything at bay. Um, during and after the, um, actually at the beginning of the lockdowns, um, when he had to work out of the home, and Michaela was home, that's our daughter, <laughs> um, he started having sleep problems. Um, and that's a first for him. He's not a young man. He's 66 now. He would have been in his early 60s during the lockdowns, of course. And he got a sleep medication, but after trying it for several months, it started making some of his symptoms worse as well. So we, we slowly had to kind of ease him off of that. And to this day, he's still having... Not as bad sleep problems, but he still has trouble getting to sleep and staying to sleep at night. And that was never really an issue with him up to that point. Usually just as soon as he hit the pillow. And um, can you... And I would know yeah. it easily because I could see that. So, yeah, this is all brand new for us. So. What aspect of the uh, the COVID measures do you think impacted his sleep? Or, or how, what was the connection? Well, just the stress. Just the stress. I mean, the lockdowns were frustrating, having to wear masks everywhere. Um, he had had some nursing training, and he did quite well in the academic end of it. He's a very bright man. Uh, and we both were privy to the fact that, um, for example, with the vaccines, um, I'm sorry, I'm getting confused here. If a person had had vaccines, according to standard immunology, that was known at the time and now, if they work, then if you're exposed to anything that you're immunized for, you should manifest little or no symptomology. So if you're carrying that virus or disease, uh, certainly that would be more of a danger. So it made sense to us that a vaccinated person would be more of a danger to other people if they were carrying. Um, and we had, sorry, go ahead. No, sorry. Did your had your husband's routine changed as well? Then he was impacted. Well, he, yes, he had to work at home. He still is, as a matter of fact. Um, he's a, a federal government employee, so um, he wasn't getting out and being exposed to, uh, you know, getting back and forth to work or running errands on the way home, things like that that had been part of his life, and just the stress of not knowing what the heck is going on, you know, um, in our world. I mean, we all were following everything. Um, and I just saw his behavior go from sort of in control to worse. And it's, it's kind of been worse since then. Like he's more difficult to deal with since that time. 
it's not as bad as during the lockdowns, uh, certainly, but he's still, his symptoms just seem to be worse at times than I remember in previous years. So that's hard on the family. It's hard on the children. It's hard on me, certainly. You know, I have to make up any deficits and I can't work outside the home. I haven't been able to for you know, quite a few years because of uh, his disabilities as well as our daughters. But um, yeah, we're all feeling it. Definitely. You know, um, my own mental health has been compromised. I see uh, my sleep disruption happening more regularly than it used to up to that point as well. And you spoke a bit about the vaccines. You're referring to the COVID-19 vaccines? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. At first, we thought we weren't going to take them, <laughs> uh, knowing what we knew and a little bit of research we've been doing. Um, but then his job um, required him to take it in order to keep them being employed by this particular department. Um, our daughter had to be vaccinated in order to return to the day program eventually. The first year wasn't such a big issue because there was no vaccine available and we had to just deal with it. But um, once it was available, they they were uh, insisting absolutely that she had to have this. So I decided I better too because our in-laws, my husband's family members, his sisters insisted that we wouldn't be allowed to visit his mother in Nova Scotia, unless we were all vaccinated. So we just said, oh, the heck with it, we'll do it. And we did. And when did you take the, the COVID vaccine? I was the probably the last person in our family to take it because I wasn't being forced to keep a job or anything. Um, my last one, and I only took the first two. I haven't taken any subsequent boosters. I believe it was either late November or early December of 2021. And I had the usual side effects from the first one, with a little bit of fatigue and sore arms, stiff arm for a few days. The second one, as soon as the pharmacist gave me the shot during that process, it was like liquid fire going into my arm. And I said, ow, quite loudly. I said, that really hurt it. I said, did you break the tip of the needle or something? And the guy who gave it to me, the pharmacist, he didn't seem to be concerned in the least. He just put a Band-Aid on it, you know, alcohol swelled in the, the Band-Aid and just said, wait 15 minutes in the store so we make sure you don't have any kind of, you know, bad side effect immediately. And I didn't. I went home. Uh, and I had the usual symptoms I had with the first one, the, the fatigue and the sore arm for a few days. But since that time, um, regularly, I've had either a sharp, fiery pain right on the the, the spot where the, uh, the vaccine went in, or like an achy feeling. And that happens several days a week, some weeks worse than others. So that and was approximately over a year ago now? Oh, sorry? That would be over a year ago now from the time that you took the second vaccine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I had, what, November, December, so a year and a third, roughly, yeah. And how soon after you took the vaccine did you start having those symptoms? Oh, right away, within the first two or three weeks. It was like I just figured it was taking longer to to get rid of the initial side effects, from you know which we were told to expect, but it just never went away with me completely. So it still bothers you today? Yeah, oh yeah, like today, it's just like I've had a really good sleep last night, so, uh, but it's still like, it doesn't hurt to touch, like I can actually bump into something, but it's almost like there's a piece of something in there and it hurts, the needle pin, which it doesn't have, of course, because it would get infected, but uh, other days it's like achy, so I'm just, I can feel it from the inside, but to the touch it doesn't hurt, which is really bizarre. (laughs) And did the pharmacist uh, speak with you about this, that this could happen or about any potential side effects? Not a thing, no. And Just, I, well, let's see, what did he ask? Well, we had to sign paperwork that asked us if we had uh, an allergy to 
one of the components of the vaccine that was uh, kind of unusual or rare or whatever. And of course, I wasn't aware, so I said no. But other than that, no. Um, I had just read online what to expect. So when it happened, I wasn't alarmed. And, and But the fact that it's continued with me, you know, not to the same degree the first few days, but it's just there all the time. And I find that so strange. Would you say that your concerns about sort of these post-vaccine uh, symptoms and lockdowns have impacted any of the relationships in your life? You mentioned um, family members who were not happy with uh, or who yeah. were insistent that you get the vaccine. Right. Um, well, I've never really shared that with any of my in-laws because they probably accused me of being crazy <laughs> or having a big imagination. Um, my media family know about it. Um, well, I haven't gone to a doctor because I figured, what are they going to do? They're going to remove the spot or do a biopsy? I mean, my experience is a lot of doctors are just trying to keep the jobs, so they're doing what the what's what's demanded of them, I think, unofficially. Um, when my husband asked for, for example, my husband could never take the regular flu shot every year because he's allergic to egg whites, the albumin, the protein, and the egg white, and a lot of up till that point, anyway, a lot of the vaccines for flu, regular flu, I believe involved the use of the egg white, at least the old ones did. So he was never able to take that. It could be a life-threatening thing. His throat would close over. And he didn't know that the new vaccine wouldn't be created that way. So when he went in to ask his doctor for a medical exception, uh, his doctor, who was from Iran or Iraq, said, gave him a story about, well, in my country, a couple of hundred years ago, there was a a gentleman in charge, their leader, who wanted to have um, marital relations with every single woman in the land. And so everybody just went along with it or their head would be chopped off. And I said, oh, well, that's an interesting analogy. <laughs> that was his response when your husband asked about getting an exemption? Oh, he absolutely yeah, refused. Right. He yeah, said, okay. no, I can't do it. Ellen, <laughs> what's been the hardest part of all of this for you? Not knowing if it's going to continue again um, or if this is going to happen in, to a more severe degree, you know, if governments are going to work against their populations, I guess, in such a blatant way. I mean, you'd have to be a fool not to recognize that this stuff happens behind the scenes all the time and has been going on since the dawn of man. But the fact that it's, it's come out of the closet so blatantly um, and they're no longer even trying to hide what they're doing. Scares the you-know-what out of all of us in our family, I guess. Um, I don't trust people in charge as much as I used to. I was never a naive person who believed everything that came down the pipeline, but I figured there's always a, the truth is somewhere in the middle. But, boy, I've gotten a lot more skeptical since, you know, all of this took place in the last two or three years. Thank you, Ellen, and I'll turn it over to the commissioners if you have any questions. Thanks very much for sharing your story today. Absolutely, my pleasure.
Thank you, Mr. Speedle. Do you affirm that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do, yes. Thank you. Can you state your full name and where you're from? Scott Stephen Spidle from Naples Valley here in Nova Scotia. Scott, I understand that back in early 2020, you had a very bad case of COVID. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. And when exactly did you contract COVID? It was about the first or second week of February. What were your initial symptoms? Initial symptoms were just normal flu-like symptoms. How did you know it was COVID, or how do you know? Uh, after the first week, about when those flu symptoms went away, I started experiencing shortness of breath and chest pain. And also, I, of course, spoke with my family doctor about this. And the testing at the time has just started. And even in the mainstream media, they reported issues with the testing, including both false positives and false negatives. And so she expressed concern with the effect, the, the accuracy of the testing. So that wasn't really relied upon. And also, upon one ER visit, uh, the doctor who seen me, he uh, at that point there's basically standard protocol to test anybody in the ER, especially if they exhibited these symptoms. And when the nurse started to prepare the test kit, the doctor turned to the nurse and said, "Don't bother with that." And at that point, I was consulting with him with my symptoms and along with the self-treatment I was doing. And he agreed that, you know, the treatment I was using was, was good. He reiterated that and that uh, he believed I had COVID as well. So your family doctor and also an ER doctor Correct. assessed that you most likely had COVID. I understand that these symptoms persisted off and on over a long period of time. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. So how many trips did you end up making to the, to the emergency room with these symptoms? Uh, the symptoms continued to get worse, uh, shortness of breath mainly. It uh, just, I got to the point where I could hardly breathe. And so, yeah. At any point were you offered any treatment? Not really. Like I say, with that one doctor in the ER, he basically just said keep using the self-treatment I was using. What was the self-treatment? I was using vitamin D, vitamin C, vitamin E, zinc, uh, honey and green tea and tonic water with lemon juice because at that point hydroxychloroquine was beginning to be spoken about as a treatment and it appeared quite evidently that that was not going to be available to us here in Nova Scotia or myself. So through my own research and people I know in the military, they suggested tonic water as it contains quinine, which is basically a predecessor of hydroxychloroquine. And did that help with your symptoms? Yes, once I started putting those kind of meds and treatment to me, it, the, it still kept getting worse, but not as rapidly. So did your COVID go away? It did eventually. Uh, I did also receive a rescue inhaler on another ER visit, which was basically a shot in the dark by the doctor. Uh, that doctor had actually believed that I, had, I was experiencing anxiety and gave me out of hand pills, sent me home with those. And I was so furious with that visit that I actually used the out of hand pills that night because I was so upset with how I was taken care of at the hospital. So how bad did your, did your COVID get? This was going on for, for how long? Uh, approximately four to five weeks from beginning to end. And, and it, like I say, it got to the point where I literally 
couldn't breathe. I only live about five, ten minutes from the hospital. And one night I ended up calling 911 because I didn't feel like I could drive that far in a car. And after several months, what ended up happening to you? I, think you I ended up having chest pain and shortness of breath slowly start to come back again off and on. And then I woke up one morning and I could hardly get out of bed because of back pain. Uh, the shortness of breath was not as severe like it was previously when I was very ill. So I wasn't sure what to make of it. I sort of just sat outside and launched her in the morning for five, ten minutes and see how I felt with some fresh air. And the pain was still there significantly. So I drove myself to the hospital that morning. And what happened at the hospital? Uh, they quickly identified one of the lungs had fully collapsed. So the doctor told me that uh, he would have to perform a chest tube, and he strongly stressed that my informed consent would be required for him to do the procedure. And so he did that, and shortly thereafter, he said that he wanted to send me back home with the chest tube. And I live alone, so I expressed to the nurse that I did not feel comfortable going home alone with this chest tube. And at this point, there's a shift change happening in the ER, and the nurse had spoken with the doctor coming on shift about my situation, and he then shortly came to speak with me and said, no, we're not going to send you home. We're going to transfer you to Halifax for emergency lung surgery in two days. So you were admitted to the hospital at that time in, an, in the valley? Correct. And can you tell us about your experience uh, in the hospital after that? Uh, I was in the ER at Valley Regional for about three to four days. Uh, I was on morphine and meds at that point, so my mind was a little cloudy. I don't remember exactly how long it was, but on, I believe it was day three, uh, my eyes began to hurt, and I just by chance happened to wipe my forehead, and it was just slime from sweat accumulating on my forehead. I did not receive any personal care at all. The only time I... A nurse or anybody came to see me in my stretcher bed was to provide morphine or medication, and I had to request a face cloth to, to clean my face. And then I believe it was the next day, because I was only there three or four days, they requested an x-ray, and I have the uh, since gutting the, the physical medical records from my doctor where it stated that they requested a mobile x-ray, where they bring the x-ray machine to your hospital bed or stretcher. And that's not what happened. The nurse was a student nurse. I guess she overlooked it or didn't know, understand the request. But she unplugged my chest tube from the backing line on the, on the wall and then took me in my stretcher, ER stretcher, to the x-ray department to wait in the hallway alone, sedated, unplugged from my chest tube. And it was only a few minutes, but... Within that short time, I could feel in my chest like the air being let out of a balloon. And when the x-ray tech came out, he looked at me and I looked at him and I said, they just unplugged my chest tube and I think my lung just collapsed. And he said, are you serious? I said, yes. And I was just, you know, on morphine going, just didn't seem like a big deal to me at, the time, at that moment. So he rushed me into the x-ray did that, rushed me back to the ER. Then the nurse came, plugged my chest tube back into the wall. And then after about five or 10 minutes, 
what had just happened sort of registered in my mind. Right? And I started yelling, help me, they're going to kill me, I need a doctor. And after yelling that three or four times, it was only a few moments, uh, the ER supervisor and a respiratory specialist came to my side. They assessed me and realized the lung had collapsed and despite being plugged back into the vacuum line, and it was not coming back up. So they just decided that they'd have to do another chest tube, which is a very painful and horrifying experience, really. And they had to do another one because they had to use, a, I guess, a larger diameter one so that they could create more vacuum in my chest cavity to allow the lung to come back up. After that, I had a very serious conversation with the two of them about how that should have never happened which they agreed, and it was shortly after then, maybe an hour or two, actually before then, the supervisor called a, nurse, a meeting at the nursing station. And because of my condition, they had me right in, in the section there, in my stretcher, right there in front of the ER nursing station so they could keep close eye on me. And so she called a, a meeting with the nurses after this happened, and basically told them, you know, if, if you have questions, have patience, wait and ask, you know, don't, you know, take your time instead of making mistakes more or less. So when and, you were admitted, uh, Scott, to stay, um, you were told in two days you'd be going to Halifax for lung surgery? Correct. How long did you end up staying in the hospital before going to Halifax? More than two weeks. And I just add to that meeting, when that was said and my, my situation was mentioned, the nurse who had unplugged my chest tube said, oh, well. And I almost flew off the handle, except immediately a nurse, an elderly nurse, has clearly been a nurse for a long time, turned to her and said, you can't be like that. Had you been hospitalized before, Scott? Yes. Uh, I actually have two autoimmune conditions, which put me at high risk for COVID. And one of those is ulcerative colitis. So I've been hospitalized two or three times for that for quite an extended period of time. How would you compare the level of care you experienced and witnessed in this uh, visit that we just spoke about compared with in the past? It was black and white difference, like, yeah, totally different. The, the, a lot of the, even the doctors, but mainly the nurses, they seemed scared or apprehensive of, of being near patients. It was very odd. And like I say, that was right at the beginning of all the hysteria and all the hype. So Scott, you've had this horrible experience with what you and your family doctor and at least one ER doctor felt was COVID, um, and it resulted in significant lung damage, correct? Yes. the uh, actually ended up having surgery on both lungs because the other lung was in the same condition on the edge of collapsing. And the surgeon had said that it took about 30 years off the life of my lungs. So then when a vaccine emerged against COVID-19, were you eager to take it? No. Did you take the vaccine? No, I did not. Why not? Uh, well, numerous reasons. One being that I had survived COVID, and I believe natural immunity was longer lasting and more effective than the vaccine. I also had concerns about the safety of the vaccine, even before it was rolled out. And also, in the fall of 2021, there when it was really getting rolled out, uh, I had two loved ones die shortly after receiving their injections. One 
within 48 hours of massive heart failure with no previous heart conditions, and the other one over the span of about a month in the hospital with all their organs shutting down and the doctor saying they didn't know why. So I was quite apprehensive to getting this shot. How did you feel when provinces across Canada and the federal government started implementing vaccine mandates and passports? I thought that was extreme. I'd even use the word tyrannical. I mean, it was a clear, extreme violation of our basic rights and freedoms. And it, it caused, I mean, we've heard numerous testimonies here that the effect it's had on people's lives, their families, relationships, employment, you name it. Are you familiar with the truckers' uh, freedom convoy that uh, went to Ottawa in January 2022? Yes. Can yes, you speak about a bit about your experience with the convoy? Yes. Uh, I missed the convoy here from Nova Scotia to Ottawa in the first week due to continuous lung issues with long-term problems. And uh, eventually, a few friends here from the province returned after being there and participating in the convoy. And at that point, I was starting to feel better. I was no longer short of breath, no more chest pain, and wanted to go. And they said, you need to be there, because they knew my position and how I felt about things. So they went back up and took me up there with them. And we booked uh, reservations at an Airbnb for a week. Uh, of course, at that point, nobody knew how long it was going to last. And that was, it was probably the greatest time of my life, especially after the, the previous two years. There's so much love and joy. It's like cry and hug every single day. A friend of mine who's had numerous friends who were truckers up there, and one of them told me that when the first day I got there, I was chatting with him, and he said his eyes hurt from crying so much of just happiness and just relief and being around people and just a sense of normality again. How long did you end up staying at the convoy? Uh, right till the very end, that Sunday morning. So you were planning to stay a week. Did it end up being longer than that? Yes. Well, they, they, like I say, we had reservations for a week, and it was time to go home, and they were heading back. And I told them the night before that I, I had to stay. It meant that much to me. And to that point, prior to that, a few days before, the, uh, when I arrived in Ottawa, the fencing was still up around the War Memorial. And I was there when the veterans took down the fencing, and it, it wasn't like the media said. It wasn't a bunch of protesters tearing it down. It was basically all veterans. People stood back and allowed the veterans to do it, and they orderly removed the fence and stacked it neatly to the side and then negotiated with the police in terms of carrying out a watch duty at the war mill to make sure nothing happened to it because, of course, at that point, the, the police were quite quite lacking resources in terms of men on the ground. So the veterans agreed to, to take on that role. Did you find that the media portrayal of what was happening in Ottawa uh, was accurate? Not at all. Not at all. No. So uh, reports that the protesters were racist, white supremacist, uh, hateful people. For example, uh, Ottawa City Councilor Catherine McKenney in an article, and this is exhibit TR14, one article in uh, Ottawa City News, Ottawa City Councillor Catherine McKinney issued a statement on January 26, 2022 that stated in part, 
Several members of this group are connected to militant, racist, sexist, and homophobic groups. And they are not here to only raise voices against vaccination mandates, but to also fuel hatred against the very fabric of our society. Do you feel that is an accurate characterization of what you observed and experienced at the convoy? No, I would say that is the complete opposite of what the, the atmosphere and the people that were there are doing. There's actually a, a very large presence of, of Christians, the religious people there, along with indigenous people. And leading up to that point, we had dozens of churches across the nation being burned and vandalized. And to have those two communities to come together was very nice to see. And there was people there from every walk of life. There's, and also the professional class. I met with numerous doctors and lawyers there. Uh, Actually, at the War Memorial, he even spoke with a, he didn't say what sport, but he was clearly, he was like seven feet tall, built, <laughs> you know, and he said he was a professional athlete. I, I assume a hockey player. I sort of know the image. I played hockey for 25 years, and he said he was fully supportive of what was happening. Do you have anything to add about the people that you met at the convoy? It was... Sorry. Uh, the veterans were, were like the heart and soul, largely, of, the, of what was happening on the ground. That moment when they removed the fence, and I was there and helped a, a veteran remove the, the flowers from the fence, and that personally and to a lot of others, that was like the highlight of the whole event. And uh, they actually, because of long family history, uh, they took me into the fold of the watch duty afterwards and participated in the night watch duty, which was a very surreal experience being in the, the nation's capital. And it was very quiet, dark, with the monument lit up. And yeah, it was pretty special. And like I say, there's a lot of doctors, nurses. There's just everybody you could imagine. What did this experience mean to you? A great deal. Uh, uh, personally, I, I'm the kind of person I believe, you know, our, our forefathers, fathers and grandfathers, they've fought and died to protect and preserve our rights and freedoms. And here we were as a nation and across the world largely sacrificing our rights and freedoms to save lives. So it was like everything was upside down. Thank you, Scott. Those are my questions. I'll turn it over to the commission. Thank you for sharing your story today. I just had one question um, around the vaccine mandates, and I was wondering if you ever asked for or obtained an exemption. No, I did not. Okay. Thank you. I did not have a need for an exemption myself personally, but I did help others with the religious exemptions, providing them with the sources to acquire that. Thank you, Scott. Thank you very much. Oh, if I could just say one more thing. When I was in, they moved me up to like a step-down unit when I was in Valley Regional. And I was there for an extended period of time. And there was a nurse who come on shift after being off for a weekend. And this was about a week and a half into it. And she, when she came in, she said, what are you still doing here? And then we had a chat. She went to go find answers. I could hear her outside the room just outside the doorway speaking with what I assume is her supervisor 
And she asked why I was still waiting, and her supervisor said that was an inappropriate question for her to ask. And she responded by saying, if he ends up in ICU, it's not my fault. And if that nurse is out there, thank you, and please reach out to me if you can. Ms. Blauvel, do you uh, affirm that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. Thank you. Right. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Uh, for the record, I'm Christina Legier. I'm Atlantic Regional Council with the NCI. Would you please state your name and spell it for the record? Janessa Blavelt, J-A-N-E-S-S-A-B-L-A-U-V-E-L-T. Thank you. At this time, I would like to, before we get into the actual testimony of the witness, I would like to ask that the commissioners take judicial notice of certain pieces of legislation and certain public health orders. So I'll just make a list. These will be provided to you for your reference documents. Sorry, there's a screen right in front of me here, so it's difficult. I can't see the commissioners. So I would ask that you please consider and review the Nova Scotia Health Protection Act, the Nova Scotia Communicable Diseases Regulations made under Sections 74 and 106 of the Health Protection Act, the Nova Scotia Personal Health Information Act, the Hospitals Act, the Hospitals Act, that was, the Nova Scotia Health Authorities Act, the Nova Scotia Emergency Management Act, and all declarations of state of emergency, uh, the original declaration of state of emergency, which was issued by the Minister of Municipal Affairs, Minister responsible for the Emergency Management Act on March 22nd, 2020. That was the first declaration of state of emergency in Nova Scotia. 
and all the subsequent declarations, they, they were renewals of the original declaration, and they uh, continued uh, every two weeks for a full two years. So the last of the declaration of state of emergencies um, expired on the 21st of March 2022. Also, please take note of the Nova Scotia Human Rights Act and the Canadian Constitution and Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Similarly, as we have had witnesses from the other Atlantic provinces, I would ask that you consider the similar health legislation um, and emergency management legislation and human rights legislation from Newfoundland and Labrador, New Brunswick, and Prince Edward Island. Furthermore, to the list, I would add, uh, in the case of Nova Scotia, 97 iterations of the one Section 32 order issued by the Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Robert Strang. Section 32 of the Health Protection Act of Nova Scotia is what gives Dr. Strang the authority to issue orders for public health in the context of communicable disease. Um, it will be important for the commissioners to become extremely familiar with the provisions. And the order which was issued, the initial order was issued by Dr. Strang on the 24th of March, 2020. And every subsequent iteration uh, through to July 6, 2022. Uh, please consider all the iterations. There are 97 in total. And it is important to note that the July 6th, 2022 iteration of the public health order pursuant to section 32 of the Health Protection Act is still in place now. Embedded in those Health Protection Act orders, section 32 orders, are protocols and directives. I would ask that the commissioners give particular attention to the COVID-19 mandatory vaccination protocol in high-risk settings, the first of which iteration was issued on October 6, 2021. That's the COVID-19 mandatory vaccination protocol in high-risk settings. It was originally issued on October 6, 2021, and it has subsequently been amended. There are other iterations of it, and they will be provided as well. Also, the COVID-19 uh, proof of full vaccination for events and activities those protocols were embedded in the Chief Medical Officer of Health's orders, but they, um, they appear as separate documents, so I'm just wanting to make sure they don't get lost um, in the shuffle, so to speak. Thank you. Ms. Blavalt, um, can you please tell us what your, uh, where you live in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia. And what is your occupation, please? I'm an LPN, licensed practical nurse. What are the duties of an LPN? I provide safe and ethical care to my patients under the direction of the RN and attending physician. Um, some of my duties would include medication administration, IV insertion, wound dressing, personal care, etc. And in what settings would you typically work as an L LPN? I worked at the Yarmouth Regional Hospital as a float nurse, so I worked in 
on all the departments. Okay. Did you work at any other location as an LPN? I did. I worked in long-term care as well. Okay. And um, thank you. You're not working currently as an LPN? No, I lost my job in the mandates. And when you say the mandates, what are you referring to, please? The forced vaccination policy that was put out by my employer in the province. And so who was your employer? Nova Scotia Health Authority. Thank you. When did you first begin working at Yarmouth Regional Hospital? I started in May of 2008. I worked in housekeeping for a number of years. And I built on my education, started in 2016. Uh, when I started my upgrading and I took a counseling course and then I started my nursing career in 2018. And where did you do your nursing training? At Nova Scotia Community College in Yarmouth. When did that begin? 2018 to 2020. And when were you to have graduated under the normal course? What would you have? I would have graduated in June of 2020. Okay. And did you undertake your studies with Nova Scotia Community College through June 2020? We were, once the uh, emergency measures were put in place in March of 2020, we got one week of our last clinical in, and then we were pulled out. And there was a lot of uncertainty for almost two months of how we were going to finish our clinical to be able to graduate. What was the implication of being pulled out, as you call it, from your clinical? Maybe you can explain that. Well, that is when you put everything together and you really put your skills together. That's where you get the on, like your hands-on training. Um, so it was a very important part of the whole thing. It's where it brings it all together and you get to utilize all your skills that you've used. So you started your program, I believe it was in September of 2018. Correct. And your clinical placement began in, was it March 2020? Correct. And you were in that one week before you were pulled out. So who pulled you out of that program? The college decided to okay. pull us out. And I don't mean to mislead. It, it's not that you were pulled out of the nursing program altogether, but that you were removed from the clinical placement, which Correct. was where? Where were you in your clinical? At the Yarmouth Hospital. Okay. So... What was the implication for you of being pulled out of the clinical, which was the most important, as you were describing it, important aspect of the uh, training for hands-on skills? Well, we found out um, after being in limbo for quite some time that we were going to finish our clinical online virtually. So we didn't get any of that experience there, the hands-on experience. And we did not completed until August of 2020. And then did you graduate? I did with honors. Thank you. So in March 2020, what was it that happened that caused your school to pull you out of the clinical placement? The public health emergency that was put in place by the province okay. and Dr. Strain and the risk of contracting COVID in the hospitals. Is that something that was communicated to you by your employer? 
or sorry, not your employer, but the Nova Scotia Community College. Is this the understanding that you gained from them? Yes. Okay. I would like to make note, and I'll ask the commissioners to take judicial notice of the fact that in Nova Scotia, the Minister of Health never issued a public health emergency. Under the Health Protection Act, there is provision, I believe it's Section 53, for the Minister of Health to declare a public health emergency. But in Nova Scotia, that never happened. The only state of emergency that was ever declared was by the Minister of Municipal Affairs under the Emergency Management Act. There were declarations of state of emergency, and you will read them, and you will see that COVID, the presence of COVID in the province, COVID-19 in the province, was rationale for the de declaration of state of emergency, but it was not the Minister of Health who declared a state of emergency at any time. So your, that was your understanding from your uh, school? Yes. The reason why that they, they pulled you out. Okay. So what then happened in August 2020? You had graduated and yes. uh, had you invested financially in your training? Yes. Yeah. I have a substantial student loan. Okay. So were you eager to get to work at that point? Yes. Were you able to get a job at that time? Yes, I started working um, in a long-term care facility. I still continued working in housekeeping as well. And then I started my full-time position at the Yarmouth Hospital as a float nurse in December 2020. Okay. So how long were you working at both the long-term care facility and the Yarmouth Hospital? I worked in the long-term care facility from October 2020 till April 2021. And I was employed with the Yarmouth Regional Hospital since May 26, 2008. And when you were employed with the Yarmouth Regional Hospital, that was, in, your employer was Nova Scotia Health Authority, is that correct? correct? Yes. So what changed for you? Um, in the summer, I'll take you to the summer of 2021. What happened in the summer of 2021? Well, there was a lot of talk about the forced vaccination. Um, I had started researching early on in the pandemic, pretty much March of 2020 when it came out. I, I woke up within two months in um, as to what I believed was really going on and I knew that this vaccination this novel vaccination was not anything that I wanted to to take and um, there was a lot of division within um, amongst the co-workers and in the workplace surrounding the vaccine in what sense was there division well there was a couple times where I was working um, one in particular where a coworker had said in front of other coworkers that anyone that was unvaccinated deserved to work the COVID unit and that they hoped that the unvaccinated person would get COVID first and as well as their family. And how did this make you feel, these conversations? Unsafe, it, it made me feel I don't know, a bunch of different emotions. Like I didn't want to be there, like I didn't fit in. Mm -hmm. 
What did you observe in the hospital in the summer of 2021 in relation to the incidence of COVID appearing among patients seeking treatment at the hospital? We had no COVID patients at that time. We had a COVID ward that was ready to go and, and nothing. And how had it been since you had been at the hospital in 2020 as well? No COVID patients. So did you inquire, you're mentioning, in your words, you mentioned that this, the, the forced vaccination. Mm -hmm. What are you referring to when you, there was talk about forced vaccination? It was just going around amongst the coworkers and mentioned, you know, through nurse managers and whatever, that it was going to be mandatory or there was talk that it was going to be mandatory to have to take the vaccine to keep your employment. And when you're talking about the vaccine, what vaccine are we talking about? The mRNA, COVID vaccines. So were you concerned when you heard talk of a forced vaccine? Yes, I was. And what, if any, steps did you take to inquire to your employer or your union about such a policy if it were coming into place? I had spoke to um, my educator that uh, I did not wish to get this vaccine. I was not taking this vaccine. And they told me at that time that it would not be able to be forced on anybody. So who was your educator? At that time, um, her name was Hannah Stanwood. And was that a, a, a clinical person or an administrative person? Uh, like an administrative education, um, educator. Mm -hmm. They go around to the floors and update you on policies and stuff like that. So that was someone you inquired of. Did you inquire of anyone else? Well, I, I made it clear to my nurse manager that I was not taking this. And what response did you get? There was really no support. Like, it was they were following what they were being told. Is that what your nurse manager expressed to you? That, that sh I need to understand a little bit more about the conversation you had, mm -hmm. what you were left with in the way of an answer. Basically, that I did not have a choice if I wanted to keep my, my job. So what communication did you have from your employer formally with respect to vaccination with COVID-19 vaccines? Well, we found out on October 1st of 2021 that the COVID vaccines would be mandatory by November 29th, 2021. And we did receive email confirmation. And I'll enter into the record uh, exhibit, as exhibit one the Nova Scotia Health Authority notice to Ms. Blavelt that she would have to get vaccinated or lose her job. What did receipt of that notice do to you? It made me spiral out of control and go into a grave depression and anxiety. And uh, my last day worked was October, actually October the 1st. I worked in the emergency department. Um, that night, too, I had a coworker say that anybody that did not take the vaccine was being selfish 
because we were in a pandemic and we were putting others at risk. Were comments like that reprimanded or dispelled by senior supervisors or other people in the administration or clinical staff? Well, I never reported it or anything. So on October 1st, you had a shift. Mm -hmm. um, I'll indicate to the commissioners that October 1st, 2021 uh, is the first date on which a proof of vaccination mandate was issued in Nova Scotia. And it's contained in, a, um, in one of the Section 32 orders of that date. So you went into mental health crisis, is that fair to say? Correct. And what did you do? I reached out to the crisis response team. And who would the crisis response team be? What is that? It's a, a mental health um, department that's within the outpatient department in the hospital. And did they see you? They did. And what happened? They put me in contact with a, psych a psychiatrist. And how soon did you get to see a psychiatrist? Right away. Would it have been within days of October 1st? Yes. Within a week of October yes. 1st? Okay. And uh, following consultation with that psychiatrist, what was the result? He put me off work for three months due to the stress and anxiety, low mood, um, the depression, and the stressors, financial stressors, all that stuff that were... Okay. And I believe that, that um, the formal notice from the doctor was actually in the form of a, an attending physician report, an APR form, Correct. as it's known, Nova Scotia Health Authority. And so that will be entered as Exhibit 2. And would you please turn to that document now? And what exactly did the doctor put in the form of uh, an, a reason for putting you off work? Stressed due to the mandatory COVID-19 vaccination mandate at work and the symptoms, anxiety, low mood, panic attacks, lack of energy, poor concentration. There are some dates on that form uh, referencing the 15th of October, 2021. Correct. Do you understand what those dates reference? Um, that may have been the, the day that I seen him in his office but I did see him in the crisis through the crisis response before that date. Okay. And so for how long did he put you off work? For three months. While you were off work, did you receive correspondence from your employer or your union? Yes. And what, what correspondence did you receive? We had to fill out the... Um, Nova Scotia Health COVID-19 Immunization Disclosure Form. So you say we, are you referring to a group or yourself? The, all the employees. I see, yes. okay. So you received that same correspondence asking you to fill out a COVID-19 Immunization Disclosure Form? Yes, and the advice by my union is that I, I should do it. Okay. And so COVID-19 Immunization, is that how it was discussed in your workplace, that COVID-19 vaccines would immunize you against COVID-19? Yes. So did you comply? No. Oh, well, I did with the form, but I did not comply with the, the mandate, no. Okay. 
And when you filed the form, uh, what date was it on which you filed that form? I'm believing it was the, October 24th. The 24th of October. Okay. And how long did it take um, them to respond to your disclosure form? October 31st, my religious exemptions were all denied. Okay. Was, was any reason given in that denial you received on October 31st? No. So you mentioned exemptions. So at what point did you uh, make any, take any steps um, to obtain an exemption from this policy requiring COVID-19 vaccination? Um, well, right away I started, but I got one um, October the 23rd. It was a sworn affidavit by a lawyer. And then I had a handwritten one that I had did out, and one from my pastor as well. And what did you do with those three documents supporting what you were hoping would be a grant of an exemption? Well, I had to attach them into this email, this COVID-19 disclosure form. Mm -hmm. um, and did you? I did, yes. So that already? Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! Okay. Rapid fire. Okay. okay. <laughs> Another gear. All right. So, Exhibit Three will be. Thank you, Commissioner. Exhibit Three will be COVID-19 immunization disclosure forms and the exemption letters that had been submitted. The response you received from your employer was a denial, am I correct? Correct. Okay. Did you at any time contact the Nova Scotia Human Rights Commission? Yes, I did. And what assistance were you looking for from them? Well, I was hoping that they would uphold my right to my, my God-given right to my body and my personal choice and my creed. And when was it you contacted them? September 2021. I started writing them when the word was going around. And what, uh, what time frame did they give you that you should re receive some response from them? Four to six weeks. How long was it before you heard from the Nova Scotia Human Rights Commission? They did write back asking for my exemptions in November. In November of what year? 2021. I attached them all and then I did not hear back until a year later November of 2022 and at that time did they confirm that an investigation would be undertaken no what was the nature of the response um, that it was a complaint process and they said thank you for your patience I'll note that exhibit four is an email from the, the employer Nova Scotia Health Authority communicating denial of Ms. Blavelt's requests for religious exemption to the COVID-19 vaccination. And Exhibit 5 is the um, email uh, stream w between uh, correspondence between Ms. Blavelt and the Commission about her request for a religious exemption. Um, I'm going to ask, I'm going to check with the timekeepers. Um, I understood that we were going to have um, the, the break was going to be forfeited so that we could continue with her Thank you. Um, because these exhibits only became available today, so that we would have to take an extra 10 minutes. 
Um, in any event, the um, so you did you make other efforts uh, to pursue the answers to your concerns? Yes. And to whom, in the way of public official, did you write? I had wrote uh, my local MLA, Zach Churchill. I wrote the Member of Parliament, Christy Anschwant. I wrote Dr. Strain. I wrote Tim Houston and the um, Health Minister. Would that be Michelle Thompson? Correct. Exits, exhibit six will be correspondence with public officials. Did you, get, uh, did you get an answer from any of them? The only one that I did get a response back was from the health minister, but it wasn't signed by her. And it did not address any of my questions. Okay. It just said that the reason why they were continuing to keep the policy in place was to protect the vulnerable population. Was there any science supplied? No. Just that they continued to listen to the science, basically. There was no evidence really given. And you then corresponded with your employer, I understand, um, in the way of a conditional acceptance? Correct. And what was the nature of that document, conditional acceptance, to get vaccinated? Well, yes, I outlined um, the adver possible adverse re uh, effects and reactions to the vaccine. And if I was to get the vaccine and was compromised or injured in any way, if they would um, support me or take liability. And did you get a response to that conditional acceptance letter that you provided? I did. Uh, they said that they received it and that they were considering it with their colleagues with People Services. And I did not hear any more about it. Exhibit 7 will be that conditional acceptance letter and the employer's response. Uh, we do have a few more questions, if I may beg the patience of the commissioners. I understand that you and other employees of the Yarmouth Regional Hospital um, um, initiated a, a process of notice of liability, which was then served on the uh, on Tracy Unger, Director of Employee and Labor Relations, is that correct? Correct. Exhibit 8 will be notice of liability and the affidavit of service of the bailiff who served that notice of liability on the Director of Employee and Labor Relations. It was signed, it was received by an assistant of hers. Um, again, any response from that? No. no. And you're a member of the CUPE union, or you, is that correct? Correct. And did you grieve your matter? I did, yes, December 14th of 21. Okay. And then, um, and so you sent, I understand, your grievance to union <clears throat> local president Carl Krauss and union rep Andrew Baxter um, to initiate your grievance uh, because your exemption had been denied, your request for exemption had been denied. You received a response to that on July 18th, 2022, I understand. Yes. On that day, sorry, the, what you That's received when the meeting a meeting was. with yes. the uh, senior human resources consultant of your employer. Correct. Yes. And did that bring satisfaction? No. On, you were then denied your grievance, I understand it, on September 13, 2022. Correct. Was that correct? Correct. Was that step three response? Yes. Okay. Has anything further happened with respect to your grievance? 
No, I was just told that the union had the right to vote what case went to arbitration and what case did not, and, and I have not heard anything more. Do you know whether your collective agreement includes a provision for voting on whose matter goes to grievance? I was not able to find that in the collective agreement. Exhibit 9 will be the grievance form and correspondence with the union. Exhibit 11 will be the collective agreement. So what, uh, so with respect to grievances and so on, were you aware of the arbitration decision of Yvonne Mackey? Yes. And who's Yvonne Mackey? She is an RN at the IWK. Okay. So I'll ask the tribunal to take notice of uh, the decision, the arbitration decision of Yvonne Mackey. That will be provided as Exhibit 10. Yvonne Mackey was a, uh, is a nurse with the IWK, Isaac Walton Killam Children's Hospital, and she w requested a religious exemption and was denied. Her matter was grieved. Her matter did go to arbitration, and she won. And it was noted that her employer uh, violated the Human Rights Act in not granting her the exemption that she requested based on her uh, religious beliefs. So what is the state of your employment now and your career? Well, I'm not allowed still in this province to work in my profession. I've been considering uh, moving out of province so I can continue to work. As it is now, the ongoing uh, public health order, Section 32 order, requires for you to return to work that you would have to uh, be vaccinated with COVID-19 vaccines. Correct. Is that correct? And. Um, you did, I understand, recently have a conversation with or attempt a conversation with uh, Karen Oldfield who I, of the Nova Scotia Health Authority? Yes, it was called the Community Conversation at the Rod Grand Hotel in Yarmouth. And also Michelle Thompson, Minister of Health was and present. Wellness, yes. was there on January 18th, 2023? Correct. And what happened there? Um, well, I had the chance to speak. They did not answer any of my questions. Um, I was very passionate. I told them how it affected my life. Um, I, I asked them uh, how long they planned to keep us on unpaid administration leave. And actually, um, the microphone was taken out of my hand and they told me that's enough because I had one more question that I wanted to ask. And the question being, is that most healthcare workers only received the two shots in 2021, early 2021. According to their very own experts and their good science, the very small amount of immunity wanes within four to six months. So technically, these employees are no longer considered vaccinated, according to their science. So why are they allowed to continue to work while I continue to be punished and not allowed to work in my profession? I'll ask. Okay. All right. All right. And I will just note that for, for the commissioner's sake, that the definition of fully vaccinated is in part one of the July 6th, 2022 order. So you'll find definition of what is fully vaccinated and the fact that healthcare workers such as an LPN do fall within that definition of uh, the application of that requirement for vaccination. I'll leave it to the commissioners to have any questions. I should note that uh, exit, uh, let's see, those are all the exhibits at this point.
Do you have any questions, commissioners? No questions. Thank you, Ms. Welbelt. Okay, thank you. Our next witness is Josephine Fillier, who will be appearing virtually. Uh, Josephine, do you affirm that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Thank you. Hello, Josephine. Hello. Uh, can we turn her volume up a little bit because I, I really can't hear you. Thank you. Okay. Um, can you please tell us your full name, where you live, and uh, what do you do? Uh, my name is Josephine Fillier, and I am from St. John's, Newfoundland, and I am a stay-at-home mother to three children. Um, in your submission to National Citizens Inquiry, you advised us that you received the vaccine in 2021. Is that correct? Yes, June 18th. June 18th. What prompted you uh, to get vaccinated? Uh, well, basically at the beginning of COVID, uh, everything was locked down and I was doing my high school uh, diploma, trying to get it after 13 years of being a stay-at-home mom. And um, I had to quit because the kids went online and I had to, you know, help them with their online studies and I couldn't focus in my house doing my work. So I became like depressed, isolated and all these things. Um, so when the injections came out to get um, the Atlantic bubble was closed and my partner was in Niagara Falls and it would be my first trip off the island. So I decided to leave. He paid for the trip and I went um, to Niagara Falls, but to get it, I had to get the, the COVID injection into my body because I was in fear that the government would come to my house and there was all kinds of fear online and the news and everything at the time. So Josephine, it sounds like you were quite apprehensive about getting, getting the vaccination, is that true? Yeah, I had um, severe anxiety attacks. Like I've been struggling with depression and anxiety since I was a little girl, but it was very manageable. I was on antidepressants and anxiety meds and they, they helped me out a lot. But um, my intuition, I guess, told me not to get this um, COVID injection. I knew something was off about it anyways, but since I was in fear, and I really wanted to go visit my partner who was in a different province and I didn't want to isolate away from my children for two weeks upon arriving home. So I ended up getting it and I knew it was the biggest mistake of my life. Okay. Josephine, where did you go get the vaccination? Um, at the Village Mall here in St. John's. Okay. Do you remember who administered it to you? Um, it was an LPN K Chidley. Okay. Uh, before administering the vaccine, uh, did the LPN explain the potential risks and or, and or benefits uh, of the vaccination for COVID-19? No, basically all they said was that I would have a fever and a sore arm and they told me to stay for about 15 minutes just to make sure I didn't have a reaction. So I took my paper that had my lot number and the the stuff to do in case you have like a fever or a sore arm or anything like that. And I just sat down 
And then I was fine after 15 minutes, so I went home. I took the bus, and I went home. Uh, prior to the vaccine, did you have any health issues? Were you an active person? Were you, were you eating healthy? Like, well, can you describe your lifestyle a little bit to us and how that's changed uh, or since then? Uh, well, before, I was a very outgoing, active person. I wasn't in fear of anything. I was like, you know, a bubbly type person. And I have ADHD, so I'm always active. Like, I wake up in the morning and I can go, go, go all day long. And um, it runs in the family. So, like, my mom's like it, my sister's like it. And ever since then, I've had to basically slow down a lot because if I exert myself much, I feel like my body is shutting down. Okay. Um, just for the commission's records, uh, the vaccine itself was Pfizer. And yeah, I had one dose of one Pfizer. One dose. Uh, do you have the lot number on you, Josephine? Yeah, I keep checking it um, to see if there's any adverse side effects. So it's FA9093. Josephine, um, what happened after you received the vaccine? Uh, just, just refresh from memory with that. So, because you said you went home, you were you were fine at first. Yeah, well, uh, I was fine. Uh, it takes me about like forty-five minutes to an hour to get the bus from the mall to my house, and I had like prior to the vaccine, I had a bruise in my right thigh and it never healed fully. So when I went home, I was laying down on the couch and I noticed that there was a severe burning pain in my leg. And I thought like that I, something was seriously wrong, that I was clotting maybe, maybe something was going on with my leg and so I put my feet up on the back of the couch just in case uh, to elevate my feet. And um, it just escalated from there. How do you mean escalated? Uh, basically, the burning never went away. Even 20 months later, it's still there. Um, it escalated to crawling sensations, like I had bugs on my legs, which are still there today. I had um, swelling and internal vibrations, and then I had lumps all over my legs, on the back of my thighs, and on my shin. Josephine, did, with, with all the symptoms that, uh, that, that you're showing, did you report those to, uh, uh, to, to a healthcare professional, to your doctor, or did you go to the hospital? Uh, no, I actually went to my doctor. He's been my doctor for 23 years now. He knows my entire medical history, my mom, my sister, all of our kids. And um, he gaslit me the entire time. I was telling him about the lumps on my legs, and he just told me to get compression socks. Um, I told him about lumps in my scalp, in my head, that were very painful. And... This remark was really, really upsetting because he told me that if I didn't look for lumps, I wouldn't find any. And I thought that, you know, 
if you check lumps, you have you have to check your body. You have to be self-aware. You have to understand your symptoms in case it could be like, you know, a tumor or cancer or something. So once I noticed that there was lumps on my leg, that was the first indication that something was going on with either my lymph nodes or my blood vessels. That's um, how long after the symptoms appeared did you contact your family doctor? I'm trying to understand from the time you received the vaccine to the time the symptoms appeared and then you reported them to your, to your physician, to your family doctor. What was, how much time had lapsed? Um, approximately maybe a month or two because I got it June 18th, 2021. And then around the beginning of August, I made my first appointment and then he basically brushed it off. So I just, you know, went home and the fall came and then the winter came and more and more symptoms started happening. Do you know if your family doctor submitted any of her symptoms to the uh, to the CARES system, the Canadian Vaccine Reporting System? Are you aware of any of that? Uh, the CARES? Yes, um, the CARES. No, I had to do that myself. Like I said, he was gaslighting me. He even said to me that it's not connected to the vaccine, the COVID injection, because he knew of somebody who impersonated someone and took 77 injections, and they're fine. Okay. Um, I, I believe that that reference is in regards to uh, person in Germany, and it was reported in, in the media, who took a number of uh, extra vaccinations in order for uh, the benefit financially. Whether it's proven or not, I'm not certain of. But Josephine, your, your family doctor didn't accept the symptoms that you were showing physically, not only uh, from a psychological perspective, perhaps due to anxiety or, or depression or heightened anxiety because yeah. of what you've read from the research, but you actually had physical ailments, physical symptoms, and your doctor was completely dismissive of that. Did you seek a second opinion? Were you able to go, uh, perhaps go to the eMERGE or to the hospital to speak to another physician about that? No, because like I said, this doctor has been my doctor since I was 10. I literally trusted him with my entire life. Like I didn't know about um, the injections. I didn't know about anything at this time. I just knew that something was wrong with my body and I needed to find out what it was because I did not feel well at all. I felt like I was dying. Did your doctor run any, any tests um, on, on, your, on your blood, for example, or any other tests uh, to ascertain to see what potentially if there's an, an issue? Yeah, I actually had to have a severe mental breakdown in his doctor's office about um, a year ago in order for him to do anything because he gaslit me so much for a long time. And then I had to like literally cry out for help saying, I know something is wrong with me. I need help. Nobody believes me because my own partner didn't believe me. My family didn't believe me. My friends didn't believe me. And I needed 
some help. I felt so alone and I needed a professional at least to acknowledge me. And so he ended up um, getting me a referral to a neurologist. He gave me blood work for um, just like, you know, regular calcium proteins and all this stuff. And then that came back normal. So then somebody um, told me to get a D-dimer test done. So I went back a couple of weeks later, got that done, that came back normal. Then uh, I was suffering with vertigo um, the summer, just past in 2022. And I felt like I was drunk and I'm taking care of my kids and I was feeling so sick for a week and I couldn't walk, I felt really unwell. So then he got me a CRP test done to see if I had chronic inflammation and that came back normal. So I just saw my neurologist on Thursday past and um, he now told me that it could possibly be dysautonomia and it's an autoimmune response to the vaccine. And then he told me that I need to get an MRI done and I need to get a lot of blood work to see if it's an autoimmune response and to also check for connective tissue damage. For the commissioners, uh, the lab report as well as the outpatient specimen collection requisition uh, would be exhibited as TR-21. TR-21A A through to F. So TR-21, TR-21A through to F. And then it also includes the immunization record. Uh, Josephine, how did you, how did it make you feel uh, when, bearing in mind we were becoming a bit of a, um, Actually, no, I'm going to skip forward just a little bit in, in, in the interest of time because I think we have an understanding how, how you were feeling at the time and everything you went through. Did you go to the Freedom Convoy? Oh, yeah. I, um, I found out about the convoy on Saturday, and then everything was planned for me to leave on Monday in Did order to go to the truck convoy. Thank you. Um, what happened as a result of your attendance uh, to the Freedom Convoy? Uh, well, my I took myself off of um, my medication because I no longer trusted pharmaceuticals because of my, my injury. And so I also took my children out of school for those two weeks while I was gone because they just came back after another lockdown and I didn't want to put a mask on their face. So I ended up going to the Truckers Convoy and my social worker who has been involved with my file for a while. She thought I was having severe mental breakdown. So when I came back February 7th into uh, Newfoundland, on February 8th, she came and told me that they had to remove my children until uh, further investigation. When, when were the kids removed from your custody? February 8th, my two boys of last year of 2022. Yeah. We're sorry to hear that. Um, and you're, you're working on this uh, actively to regain custody of your children? Yeah, well, my, my oldest has come home 
uh, as of December, but my youngest is having some behavioral issues at school. So my social worker wants to make sure that I am, you know, okay with my mental health and he has support and I have support before he can return home, but he's in the process of transitioning back. Oh, very good. Just, uh, just a couple of more questions. You said that you were, that you've come off medication in, uh, earlier this year. Can you just briefly describe what medication you were on and what it was, what it was for? Um, well, I don't remember the name of my antidepressant, but um, I was on antidepressants and then I was on lorazepam for my anxiety because I were, I was in abusive relationships and had childhood trauma. So I have severe PTSD from all of that. So, but everything was fine. It's just that since I got this injection into my body and I knew something was seriously wrong, I no longer trusted pharmaceuticals or doctors. You were, said you were, uh, you, you've had anxiety and depression since childhood, which uh, you also said, you know, got heightened because of the vaccination. How was your mental health uh, up to, or when you were, how was your mental health affected after you received the vaccination? Did your symptoms increase or did they stay about the same? What happened? My symptoms seriously increased. Um, from basically depression and anxiety to severe panic attacks where I felt like I was having a heart attack constantly. Um, I had chest pains, electrical shocks in my chest. I had um, chronic fatigue and anger issues. And then basically it just escalated from that to I had a tremor in my leg last April because I was out for a walk and I became chilly and my right leg, like when I came home, I put my feet on the heater like I normally do to warm up and then my leg just started shaking uncontrollably. And it's basically affected my entire nervous system. I have severe nerve pain, like my feet go on fire and it's mostly my right leg. That's what I don't understand. Like I guess since I had the bruise there, and with my research, the spike protein possibly started a, a, like attacking that one part of my body and then it spread throughout my entire system. But even now, like my neurologist checked my leg and he said that my leg is much more weaker than my left leg. So I have a severe pain all the time, like numbness, my foot goes numb, it goes on fire, crawling and pins and needles shooting pain, stabbing. Thank you, Josephine. I really appreciate it. While I do have more questions, I do not have more time. So I'm going to refer to the uh, commissioners for any follow-up questions. No questions. Thank you, Josephine. I really appreciate your time. Thank you.
Smith. Do you affirm that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. Thank you. Can you please tell us your name, where you're from, and what did you do? <laughs> uh, my name is Linda Adshade. I'm from Oxford uh, here in Nova Scotia. Uh, I worked with the uh, Nova Scotia Health Authority um, from 2009 until, uh, let me see, probably October of 2019. At that point, I took a position with public health. Please don't shoot me. <laughs> Linda, what, um, I understand you've had a, a, a lengthy career with Nova Scotia Health Authority, but I'd like to focus on your most recent uh, role with with NSHA, uh, NSHA. That can you tell me how you how you came to be in the position? What the position is and what it entailed? So there was um, a broad letter sent out. They were looking for many people to come to work with them for the uh, lab results. So you had the negative and you had the positive lab results. So. Excuse me, negative sorry. lab results for what? Oh, sorry, for COVID-19. So COVID-19 tests that people... Yeah, the PCR tests. Okay. Sorry. Thank you. Um, so I was put in a position to look after the negative lab side of it. Um, so when I went there, I actually started off doing the uh, vaccine clinics. Um, was pulled from there to go back to work remotely from home. Uh, I, they made me the supervisor of about five people at that time. Okay, so if I understand correctly, you, you had a different role. They advertised this role specifically that deals with COVID-19 test results. That's correct. And you assumed that role and it was uh, completed remotely. You did not have to attend the office. That's correct, yes. Okay. Yeah. So can you tell me more about, about what, what do you mean you, you received or you were in charge of the negative tests? And uh, what was the overall purpose and of that scope as well, please. Okay. So um, I would get all the information in the morning. Then my staff would call all of the individuals uh, on the list to give them their um, PCR test results. Um, and we only dealt with the negative side. That's the only people that we called. Okay. So that means, um, if I understand correctly, people throughout the province would attend testing centers. Mm -hmm. They would get the COVID vaccine tests done, uh, the swabs, or whatever the case may be, uh, and then you would receive the test, the lab results. Right. That's and correct. would that include then contact information for the individuals? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And what would you do with the test results? Um, so with the test results, so in the morning I would get this huge, huge file. Of course, you can imagine how many people are being tested. Uh, once I got that file, I would then take the file and separate it. Um, I would keep all of the data for myself. I needed that information to deal with situations, but my staff only received the negative uh, lab results. So they would have the name, all of their information, so that we could confirm, you know, may I speak with so-and-so? Could you please give me your name, your um, date of birth, health card number? anything along those lines just to verify. Then we would give them the test results. Okay, and you said you received a big file in the morning that included all test results. So That's it would be correct. negative as well as, as positive. Positive, yeah. Uh, but, uh, but you were focused for your role 
only on the negative aspects that you would then disseminate to your staff who make the contact with the people. Um, is there anything that you can tell us how that data that you received in, in those spreadsheets was related to information that was given to us on the televisions, by, <laughs> through the media, or through the government, government messaging? Okay. Um, so I started getting a little, thinking to myself, wow, they seem to be like saying there's all these cases, I don't get it. So again, it came on an Excel spreadsheet. I was able to take out the positives from the negatives so that I only ended up with the positives. When I counted those up each day to the end of the week, they didn't match what they were telling us on TV, not even close. They were saying thousands of people. There were not thousands of people in the run of a week. They were off by hundreds, <laughs> not by two or three, hundreds. Um, I started thinking, okay, this is crazy. They're lying to people. Um, so based on the numbers that were shown on TV, it did not match up with what you had in front of you. You literally had the actual figures in I front did. of you yes. that they would have used to compile the numbers shown uh, to the people in the that's province correct. and around. Yes, that's correct. Did you take any steps about that? Did, did you follow up on that? Or was this really more you were you know, gravely concerned? But how did you feel about that then? Well, I was upset because they were lying to the people. They were lying to us. They were lying to everybody. Um, I didn't take it up with uh, my management or my supervisor um, because I was <laughs> met with a lot of resistance prior to that for my opinion <laughs> on the vaccine. Um, we'll, we'll get to that too. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, Samais, your, your role as a supervisor gave you access to all the data, all mm -hmm. the tests within the province, the entire province. Yep, the entire province. And the province inflated grossly, according to you, grossly inflated the numbers that they gave to the people in terms mm -hmm. of how many people tested positive for COVID-19 in relation to how many actually tested positive. Right. Thank you. Um, Josephine, I, I now I'm going to move away from that and let's talk about your story a little bit as well because it is also very important. Your job that you had uh, as the supervisor for, for negative COVID-19 testing, that was, you mentioned it was done remotely. Was it done, in, were you able to do that entirely remotely or were you, did you have need to go to an office at any time? The only time I would have had to go to the office was to pick up equipment. Um, but other than that, I work remotely just from my kitchen in my home. Okay. And what happened that changed your employment status? Did you receive notification from the province in regards to your vaccination or uh, vaccination requirements because there was mandates were coming in yes. uh, for Nova Scotia Health Authority workers, employees, not just healthcare professionals, but all employees for the health authority? Right. Were, were you affected by that? Yes, I was. Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm going to enter exhibit TR-17, which, which is a letter, uh, an email that was sent out. And I'm just, I just want to read 
just a short excerpt from that, if I may. The date on this is November 30th, 2021 at 10.29 a.m. It was sent by the COVID-19 policy request, uh, and the subject was viral vector off of vaccination. Dear, no, dear NS team member, you're receiving this letter as you have submitted an intent to decline COVID-19 vaccination or an exception request, medical or human rights, that has been declined or remains on review. COVID-19 vaccine core planning team in Nova Scotia Health, occupational health safety and wellness team are continuously looking for ways to support healthcare workers impacted by the provincial mandate for those working in high risk settings. So I'm just gonna focus on, just on those three little words to that, that high risk settings. How high risk of a setting was your home? Uh, well, let me put it to you this way. I live in the middle of absolutely nowhere. So unless a bear had COVID and come into the home, that's the only so, way. But, but so because you, it was really a rhetorical question in a sense, wasn't it? No, no, that's okay. I, 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 want, I wanted an answer, um, but they send an email out to uh, health authority employees specifically addressed to working for those working in high-risk settings, yet your role was not in a high-risk setting because you had no contact. Uh, ultimately, uh, I'll sum it up as with the outside world because you were, you were working from home remotely with no need to attend the office. No. Is that true? No. Okay. Uh, I, won't, I won't read the rest of it, uh, but it will be there for the commissioners. I take it you received that letter because you showed an intent or you gave them notice that you, had, that you were not planning on getting vaccinated. That's Is that correct? correct? Yeah. Okay. Did you feel that you had enough information about the vaccine, uh, about its safety and efficacy before making that decision, or what prompted you to turn away from the vaccine? Um, there were several things. Um, basically that it was rolled out so quick. Um, my understanding is a vaccine takes years to, not that I'm a doctor, nurse, scientist or anything, just from understanding, it, it takes many years to, to produce a vaccine. I, I felt that this was too quick. Um, uh, 50 years ago, my mother um, was given a drug when she was pregnant. It affected me that I had, at the age 22, cervical cancer from this drug that she took. It also affected my daughter, who also has precancerous cells. Um, it can also affect my grandson. So I have a little issue with uh, trusting that stuff without actually doing some good research. Um, when I did all my research and looked into it, I did not feel comfortable at all. You had a, obviously a very, uh, very serious experience as a result of that um, vaccine. Do you remember what, what vaccine your mom got that might have caused it, that might have been responsible for that? I, I, I'm not sure. I believe. Okay. But <clears throat> that, that's fine. So based on that, you, you made the decision, I'm not going to. I just don't trust it. And mm -hmm. you said you've done some research uh, about this vaccine. Because of that decision, did you submit a letter uh, of exemption or uh, any other documentation to your employer 
telling them, advising them of your hesitancy? I did not. Uh, again, I, I've worked in about eight different areas of the hospital. Um, I also worked at the doctor's office at one point. Uh, not that this came from a doctor, but told by some of the staff was, don't even ask. Nobody's getting them. So you were told, but basically, so your belief was that, well, I was talking to people and colleagues and workers, mm -hmm. and they said, don't bother me, she chose not to. That's correct. Um, what was your response to, you received this email about the need of vaccination. Can you tell me about that experience that led to your suspension or termination of employment with the Nova Scotia Health Authority? Uh, so I had my manager ask me several times, you know, about, you know, getting the vaccine. I told her, you know, you knew from the start, I'm not doing this. Um, so she said, you know, that you will be, you know, put on unpaid leave, which could lead to termination, you know, if you don't take this vaccine. And I said, I'm well aware of the consequences. And so you had a conversation with your supervisor about the vaccine your hesitancy and, and you were advised of the potential consequences. Mm -hmm. um, did you have an experience with your supervisor or a specific chat with your supervisor or manager about getting vaccinated and uh, that supervisor then go and get the vaccine in order to make you feel safer about its safety? Um, can you tell me more about that please? So I was talking to her one day, uh, you know, about my hesitancy and explaining, you know, just things just don't seem to be adding up. I'm, you know, she goes, well, I'm going to get mine this afternoon. My first one, you know, when I get back, I'll touch base with you because um, I was a supervisor. So she said I should be back by, you know, four o'clock at least. So getting on to six o'clock, I still haven't heard from her. Finally, she calls me. She says, I am so sorry that I ran so late. I got my vaccine and I got facial paralysis and had to go to the doctor. <laughs> so that, that certainly didn't. Uh, no. <laughs> how, how did that make you feel? I, should say. I was like, okay, that determines it 100% for me. So you had no support from your employer in regards to the, uh, to the vaccine. Uh, hesitancy not because you submitted a letter but because you chose not to and, and also not to, to I guess, speak up because you were under the belief mm -hmm. that they were not going to be uh, receptive anyhow. Right. Just in the interest of time, how were you then I guess laid off or terminated? Can you tell me what to uh, as we move forward to how, how that happened for me please? Thanks. Um, so I think my last day uh, with public health was 27th of November um, of 21. Um, so thinking to myself, okay, uh, you know, I'm possibly going to starve to death here. So I decided to, okay, I guess I'm going to take early retirement. I still had three years to work to get my full benefits. Um, unfortunately, I don't have my full benefits. Um, so, oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Uh, so basically, um, they just told me that you know, as of De December 1st, you're done. So I got up on the uh, 1st of December to collect all my information off of the computer, and they had literally stripped me of everything. 
I could not get into my email. I could not check my pay. I could not look at anything. So you were you were locked out effective. Was that the, um, was that a deadline for the vaccination requirement, or was that when you said I'm going to take early retirement, and that early retirement is going to be effective on December first? No, because it didn't become effective until January. Okay, so you were. So I was locked out of the system done. a little yeah. early, and I even called and said. Can I not just get my email about my pay? Nope, you are done and basically don't contact until you're vaccinated. How has this impacted you financially? The early well, retirement because it doesn't sound like you wanted to retire. You no, I didn't. So, yeah. Yeah. How did that affect you? Well, we are just living on my husband's income at uh, this time. Thank God, he's uh, you know he's a good worker, he's a good man. So, uh, right now we're living on his income. Once again, while I have more questions, uh, in the interest of time, I will ask the commissioners if they have any questions. Thank you for testifying. Thank um, you. Just had a question about um, the numbers that you were talking about at the beginning of your testimony. And I was just wondering how you know um, that the numbers you were getting every morning were for the entire province. Because we called the entire province. <laughs> so that was part of the, that's what they indicated when you first started working. You would receive all of the data of all of Nova Scotia. We called everywhere in Nova Scotia. It wasn't just within our area. We called right across Nova Scotia. So all the results came from the testing that was done here. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, on the same topic, um, what was the, the gap you would see between what you, what you could see on the Excel sheet and what was published? Was it a significant gap in terms of the number? I would say anywhere from two to 400, possibly. Is that what you're meaning? I mean, in terms of, not, was it like a twofold more or because 200 is an absolute number? Is that what you're saying? No, it wouldn't be an absolute number. So I would say that probably, I don't know, they were reporting 25 to 30% more than what was actually there. Okay, so it's an increase about 25%. Yes, I would say, yeah. Okay, and any information on the uh, 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 cycle threshold on these uh, Excel sheet, or is it blind? They were sent to you every day, every morning at 8 o'clock. I'm not talking about uh, what was the level of amplification they were using to get the positive. Was it like fixed? 40, 45 cycle, or you don't know? You don't I'm have not this information. sure on that, to you be You don't have this information? Yeah. No, I don't have that information. And, and how long was that reporting or communication to the public maintained? Was it stopped at one point? What, what was the uh, the time frame? It was, it was since the beginning of the pandemic, mm -hmm. and then it went on until... Till is it, is what it, was, it was still going on when I left in 21. They were still reporting. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yes. And yeah. It, it was going on after that? Yes, yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so very much. I appreciate your time.
Katrina Burns, do you affirm that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Thank you. Can you please tell us your full name, where you're from, and your occupation? Um, my name is Katrina Burns, and I'm from Truro, Nova Scotia, and my I'm a substitute teacher. And how long have you been a teacher? Um, I've been a teacher for about seven years now. Has that been in the public system? Or? Uh, no, I was originally started out in the private school uh, sector and then moved into uh, Halifax Regional Center for Education in 2020. Okay, so you did uh, approximately five years in the private system and yeah. then you switched to HRC in... When did you start at HRC, sorry? Um, I started in September of 2020. Okay. So going back to the pre-pandemic era, sort of late 2019, early 2020, can you share a bit about what your life was like back then, family, community, et cetera? Um, we were just a basically normal family who had just had our second daughter. I had my second daughter uh, September 22nd of 2019. Um, and we had planned to do, I, with my first daughter, I had gone out, I had done every activity possible from stroller boot camp to um, play groups. And then with the birth of my daughter, obviously in came um, COVID and we were on lockdown essentially right away. And did you know your neighbors pretty well at that time? Uh, very close with our neighbors, very, very close. And at that time, you're in Truro now, but at that time... I was in Hammonds Plains. Hammonds Plains. And how long had you been living in Hammonds Plains? Seven years. In the same community? In the same community. And then you started at HRCE in, in which month of 2020? Um, well, it would have been August is when teachers usually go back. Okay. And what was it like starting there? Um, so I had gone into... Um, the public school system as a substitute. So when they originally started in 2020, they had sectors of um, places where you were allowed to go to sub. Uh, so there was about, I think, 30 schools in my section that I could go, I was allowed to sub at. I kept it narrowed down to two schools, and I was a lucky, lucky enough to get a job every single day at those two schools. Um, but a lot of people had... A problem or a difficult time finding um, employment during the time because of the limitation of where they were able to sub. So over the course of 2020 school year, you were subbing uh, between two separate schools yes. and you substituted pretty much every day. Yeah. And then can you, the place that you worked uh, in 2021, did you continue doing that or? Uh, yes, so I ended up falling into a, a long-term sub position, um, which was a maternity leave uh, at one of the schools that I was subbing at. Um, and then that's where I had started of uh, September 2021 um, in a grade two, three class. And you had been subbing there at the, yes. at the same school the year before. Can you tell us a bit about your class that year in, in September 2021 and the school you were working? Yes, so I was at a school named Sycamore Elementary in Sackville, and it was a lower-income school with a lot of uh, kids who had diverse needs. Um, the class I was getting was a particularly difficult one with multiple students who had anywhere from behavioral needs to um, severe learning disabilities. 
What grade was it? It was a 2-3 split. And so do you feel that in the course of your time teaching there um, that you were able to make some progress, build some good rapport with the students in that class? Absolutely. So from day one, I started my class similar to another teacher who was actually here where we would kind of talk to each other about how we were feeling. We weren't able to have any kind of physical contact, but we would be having conversations in the morning about how we're feeling coming into the class, uh, how we're feeling about our day, and kind of what our day would look like so that they were prepared throughout the day for their transitions. And so you started in 2020. There had already been shutdowns the year before, um, and so the COVID protocols were sort of in place. We were about six months in, I think, at that time. Do you recall what sort of COVID measures were implemented in your school? Absolutely. So there, um, when I was originally subbing uh, in 2020 and started out, there were many different protocols in, ever, like in the different schools. So some schools went as far to have walkie-talkies so you could communicate if a child either fell on the playground um, or needed some assistance. That way, um, someone from the office would come and escort the child back to the office to kind of be looked at. That way it would keep kids from transporting through the school so much and we could keep uh, transmission down throughout the school. Um, there were other schools who almost barely had any kind of protocol and then Sycamore did have the same kind of protocol where it was down one side would be a class going down one side, another class coming up the other, sanitizing as soon as they came into the classroom or left or went to the washroom and came back in. Even if they had just washed their hands in the washroom, it was still sanitizer to come back into the classroom. Um, there was also, if there was any sign of sickness, it was a call up to allow the principal to know so that we could then call their parents to get them to be picked up. Were the kids subject to masking and social distancing? Absolutely. So desks had to be... When I had gone into the 2-3 class, we were allowed at that point to put the desks kind of together, but they had to stay in those groups. Um, there was no traveling around the classroom unless they had the mask over their face. Uh, they were able to bring their mask down while they were sitting at their groups. And I did have an area set up in my classroom beside the window for the summer months when it was really, really hot for the kids to go down, pull their masks down so that they could sit and get fresh air in the morning. So based on your personal observation, how did those measures impact the daily life for students and teachers at the school? Um, it was so hard to go in in the morning and see all of these kids with the mask up over their face and struggling to breathe um, and struggling to kind of express themselves. It was almost like they had become kind of emotionless to what was happening around them. You had some kids who were so worried about getting COVID and spreading it to family members that they were just panicked as soon as they came in. You had kids who were also um, against the mask because obviously they had heard their parents talking and they would fight you on the mask and it was constant that we would have to remind them to pull their mask up over their face and, and that they had to follow the rules in school um, that we were mandated to follow. So. Did, would you say that the kids generally kept their masks clean and sterile? No. <laughs> when the COVID-19 vaccines came out, did you take one? I did not. And why not? Um, I had just felt really off about how fast things were coming out and how much pressure they were putting on people to go get a vaccination. Like, there had never been that much pressure put on 
any other kind of like flu vaccine or anything like that before. So I had not, like I, it just seemed kind of fishy to me that we were pushing people to kind of go do this and, and even against their will, even when they were asking for exemptions. So did you feel pressure to take the vaccine? Absolutely. Um, there was pressure on all ends, not like from my family, from family friends, from um, people at school to ju just everyone all around me seemed to have kind of like our neighbors as well became people who would just constantly be reminding us like, oh, well, you could just go get the vaccination. Like the, it's easy. You could go get it and then all of this would be over. So... Did you start noticing any differential treatment on the basis of this decision? Um, I did, especially for my six-year-old. Um, we grew up in a community where we all had kids together. Um, and it became part where there were bubbles. And my six-year-old daughter would sit in the window and stare out at her friends playing, and she wasn't able to go play with them. Did you notice any differential care in, uh, in the healthcare system? Uh, yes, yeah. so around October of 20, um, 2021, I had been driving with um, my husband and I felt a sharp pain just shoot down my left arm. And then it came to a point where I couldn't breathe. And we had to pull over and I couldn't catch my breath. I had, my heart was pumping from my chest, and so we went to eMERGE. Um, I have a vast history of heart problems, everywhere from heart problems to blood clots to aneurysms in my family, including my father, who had his first um, heart problem at 27 years old, and I'm 33, just for reference. Um, so I had gone in and... Once we got to the hospital, there was screening for COVID, and I'm standing there clutching my chest, asking to be helped. And the woman went through the protocol, got to the question about whether or not I was a vaccinated individual. And when I said that I wasn't, it was at that point where she proceeded to then stop t and tell me that her father-in-law was not vaccinated and was against the vaccination and decided after she had a long talk with him that he would go get it, so therefore I should go and get it because I'm just hesitant on the vaccination as I'm clutching my chest thinking that I'm having a heart attack. In the fall of 2021, when Nova Scotia announced the Nova Scotia COVID-19 mandatory vaccination protocol in high-risk settings, uh, indicating that uh, teachers would be required to uh, have two COVID-19 vaccines, what was that like for you? What were you feeling? Um, at this point, um, I was incredibly worried for my future. Um, I knew that I wasn't going to get the COVID-19 vaccination, especially after having gone through what I went through at the hospital. It just kind of reconfirmed that it wasn't something for me. Um, if I wasn't going to get the care at that point, if something did happen when I did take the vaccination, I wouldn't have the care at that point either. Um, so, um, at that point, I just felt that I couldn't go through with it. Were you worried about your job? I, very much so, but, um, 
I was also more so worried at that point about the 21 kids who were sitting in a classroom who also needed to have that constant or consistent support and the constant reassurance from someone in the morning that they were going to be there and be that support for them. Some of these families were children who didn't have the proper support at home or the proper care at home and who needed someone there. Um, and then there were other kids who struggled very much with bullying and were um, coming back to school and, and struggling with their reading and their, their writing and needed that support. So it was these 21 kids who weren't going to have that support from me that I was giving them, and I didn't know whether or not the replacement or my replacement would give them the same amount of care. So I was worried about losing my job, and financially it obviously put a strain on my life. However, I was more so worried about the 21 kids that I was teaching. Did you attempt to get an exemption from your employer? I did. Um, so I had sent in an email uh, explaining why I felt that I couldn't get the COVID-19 vaccination, and I was denied um, the exemption. Did you provide me with a copy of that response from HRC? I did, yes. Do you have that in front of you? I do. So it's exhibit TR0007B. And do you mind if I read an excerpt from their response? Mm -hmm. So after careful consideration, I have concluded that the information provided is not sufficient to support the need for an accommodation. Further, I note that your position as a teacher requires that you interact directly and in close proximity with students. As such, even if you are entitled to an accommodation, Halifax Regional Center for Education could not accommodate it without undue hardship. So they felt you had insufficient information and they state that even if you had sufficient information, they would not grant an exemption. Mm -hmm. Did you also inform your employer that you'd be willing to wear a mask or test regularly as an alternative to vaccination? Absolutely, so I had gone in uh, every day wearing a mask, even though it was the most horrendous thing to try and teach with a mask on, especially when you're trying to keep, teach kids who are trying to read. Um, and I did tell my employer that I would test every single day if I could keep my position. And what was their response? No. Did you also provide me with a letter of support from one of your student's parents addressed to Tim Houston, Zach Churchill, and Robert Strang, expressing their discontent with the mandates on account that their child was losing you as a teacher? Yes. And do you have a copy of that in front of you? I do. So that's exhibit uh, TR-0007A. And do you mind if I read an excerpt from there? Sure. So to Tim Houston, Zach Churchill, and Robert Strang, today I received notice that my eight-year-old son's teacher will be removed from her position due to this unethical, unnecessary, and illegal vaccine mandate being forced on all Nova Scotians by your government. I am irate. Katrina Burns is one of the best teachers my child have ever had. She is irreplaceable, yet you now unwisely and unjustly caused her to have to be replaced. Can you tell me a bit about this student? Um, so he was a young boy who had had trouble in previous years with being bullied, um, and his mom had removed him from school in pre-primary, but then he wanted to go back to school and get to know some of his peers and kind of socialize with peers. Um, so he had decided to come back to school. Um, he had struggled very much with reading and his writing um, 
And in the short time that I was with him, he made leaps and bounds compared to what he was. And he loved coming to school, which was vastly different from his previous years. So that made all of the difference in the world for him to come in every day and be as happy as he was. Was this the only parent who had expressed support for you at this time? Uh, no. So I was made to stay and go through parent-teacher um, and go through all my parent-teacher interviews, which were all phone interviews at this point. Um, and then afterwards was able to uh, allow parents to know that I would no longer be their uh, their students or their child's teacher. Um, and I had so many parents reaching out to ask, like, what can we do? Who can we contact? And given the response that I had received, I said, unfortunately, I don't think there is anything that you can do. Um, but I appreciate very much the support. Uh, yeah. Did anything change your employer's mind? No. So you were placed on unpaid administrative leave? I was. When? Um, for December 1st was the, so November 30th was my last day of work, and December 1st I was completely done. So from the time, do you recall when the, the vaccination protocol was announced? I feel like it was October 6th that it was okay. announced. So approximately early October, you find out that you're going to be placed on unpaid leave indefinitely, and then you stay in the school and you work there for approximately two more months. Mm -hmm. What was it like working there during that time, knowing that? Um, so I kind of kept my vaccination status hidden as long as I could just to avoid any kind of um, bullying or kind of um, different treatment from the staff. Um, again, I worked at a, a very lovely school um, for the most part. Everyone was COVID conscious, but they weren't, they didn't kind of judge me any differently once they found out. So I took the time to kind of let them know myself. The people who were um, very COVID conscious and were constantly checking numbers and constantly um, following all protocol to make sure that they didn't get COVID kind of stood back a little bit further from me, but there was never a point where they kind of treated me too much differently. They would just keep their distance. Can you describe what it was like for you to leave school on your last day before your leave? Um, so the last day of work, the last week I was at work, I was asked to train the person who would be taking over for me um, and to kind of help them with some of the um, needs that were in the classroom. So I spent the week packing up my classroom um, and if anyone is a teacher in here, they know how much stuff that teachers accumulate over the time. So I spent that week un unpacking my classroom, but still leaving stuff so that there was a bit of normalcy for the kids. Um, and then come the last day, it was a very emotional thing for especially my classroom because they couldn't fully understand why I was going to have to leave. And they didn't fully understand why I couldn't just stay and teach them, um, even though I wasn't vaccinated, because I still followed all of the rules. What impact did this have on your life, this experience? Um, so my life has drastically changed compared to what I, I did before. I was very much, I guess, what you could call a rule follower. I didn't go against the grain at all. Um, I thought that I would have this wonderful life where I'd become a, a permanent status teacher 
Um, my husband would work, we'd make money, and our kids would grow up. And now we're living on one income. We've moved out of the community that we were living um, and sold our first house and moved to Truro. Uh, we have lost family members. We have lost family members or friends of family that have been family or family friends for 24 years since my dad passed. So to say that it's had a, a mass effect on my life would be like a valid thing to say. It's been, it's been horrible. My mental health has struggled incredibly. My kids have struggled. Um, we've missed out. I had to miss out on dance recitals. I had to miss out on first time things for my six-year-old daughter. So it's been horrible. Do you have any final words, Katrina? Um, I just, I was very hesitant to come up and speak just because I've kind of stayed hidden for a little while, uh, especially with the move. I had a lot of um, kind of uh, backlash when it came to my choice and why I wouldn't just go with it. But I feel like it's very important um, to make note that I was classified in with a group of people just because they were fighting for a right. And I was then called a misogynistic racist. And if you know, like if the people who know me know that that's not who I am. That's not who I am as a mother. That's not who I am as a daughter. That's not who I am as a wife or as a as a, um, a teacher. So to be classified as that uh, and to be treated the way I was treated by people who were a part of my life for so long is insane that this has happened. Thank you, Katrina. so much for your testimony. You started to mention that you used to be a rule follower. Mm -hmm. That's by temperament, I suppose. <laughs> so have you now come up with being more questioning about rule? Absolutely. Um, especially with my sent, uh, the time at the hospital where it was just like things were just dismissed. I definitely question a lot more. Um, and especially when it would come to my kids, there's definitely a lot more question when it comes to vaccinations. Even my hesitancy to go to a doctor if my kids are sick or if I'm sick is huge at this point. There's also another thing I miss in your, or maybe it's just me. When you went to the hospital, mm -hmm. were you, were they, did they end up treating you properly? So no, um, I didn't get into that part. And, um, but I was brought in and I went to triage, sat down, um, and they were, the nurses were whispering behind triage. Uh, and then I heard them say she's unvaccinated. So at this point, they handed me the little monitor to put on my finger. Um, and then they proceeded to put their gear on. Um, and then threw my uh, identification bracelet at me instead of handing it to me or putting it on. Um, asked, my, asked my husband to leave who had driven me in there and I live with and then they brought me into um, the main area of the QE2 to kind of check my heart but then again said she's unvaccinated so moved me to another area. The room that I went into had a bed with dirty linen all over it and the nurse took the linen threw it to the side and then told me to remove my shirt 
Then another doctor came in, slapped the monitor on my chest, then ripped it off, and security escorted me down to a room that had plastic boards up the middle of the, of the walls, and then signs posted all over that said droplet exposure. They then allowed my husband to come back in, but had him fully dressed in mask, headgear, like a, a gown, and made him sit six feet away from me. They then came in, um, they took my blood, they then administered a COVID test. They took the COVID test right away, stuck my blood on the door, um, and every nurse or doctor that came in had to put on new gear and take off the gear as they left the room. I saw probably two nurses and then the doctor came in. The doctor disregarded all of my conversation about how I was feeling, proceeded to tell me they would not be sending my blood for any testing. They would send my COVID test, however, and I would hear back about my results from my COVID test and then sent me on my way. Is that normal protocol for these? <laughs> it doesn't seem normal. And my my um, dad, as I mentioned, had multiple um, multiple heart attacks, and they when he went in, they did test his blood um, because usually the heart attack had passed by the time he got there. So I wasn't oblivious to that having to be done, but he flat he he told me that he would not be sending in my blood work. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Katrina. Thank you. Mr. DeRoche, do you affirm that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. Thank you. Can you please tell us your full name and where you live? Uh, Kirk DeRogers. I live in the South Shore, Northwest Cove. Um, what's, what was your occupation? Uh, I worked for a company called Admiral Insurance. I was a facility specialist for uh, just a little over 13 years now. What does that mean, facility specialist? Uh, dealing with uh, the property itself within the building, contractors, vendors, health and safety, uh, IT support, and uh, ergonomic assessments. Okay. Uh, and you were a volunteer in your community? I do lots of volunteering in my community, yes. Okay. Um, particularly, do you volunteer as a volunteer firefighter? I do, yes, for uh, District 1 Blanford. I want to talk about a little bit more about your volunteer firefighting. What was your, uh, as a volunteer firefighter, for you specifically, what was your role? What, what, what were you doing there as a volunteer firefighter? Uh, for 
particular role like that is uh, a lot of extensive training uh, and a lot of studying and learning about the equipment and the apparatuses on the fire trucks and a lot of dealing with uh, medical calls and learning about medical procedures. You also I was, I was studying for the MFR, medical first response. He was studying, okay, excellent. Within that capacity as a volunteer firefighter, not only did you receive a lot of training, but would you suit up and attend calls, fire calls, and uh, calls of that nature as well? Uh, starting off, I was just still training. I wasn't a full firefighter, but uh, I would wear the gear and do drills and training exercises. Okay. For those for those training exercises that, that you did, um, that would, when you see full gear, what does that mean? What do you mean by full gear? Does that mean oh, like you get the, the helmet, the mask? Have the helmet, uh, the, full, the full wardrobe, the tank, the scuba gear, they call it, all the apparatus, all your equipment. How much weight would that be? Well, if you yeah, put your, yeah, it's put a little over together. 75 pounds. 75 pounds. So you'd have to be in pretty good physical condition to strap on this apparatus suit and then conduct exercises in that as well? Uh, not so much physical. I guess in an aspect you would have to be physical but strong. Right. Because like I said, depending on the extra equipment that you have to carry, depending on the type of call or emergency you have, hmm. it, it could be uh, overwhelming. So in order to become a fully qualified firefighter, you said you had to, you had to uh, undergo testing. Um, what was, was there a test you did in 2021 uh, in order to you know proceed in those qualifications? Yes, in order to be a volunteer firefighter, you'd have to uh, go to a doctor and do a full physical assessment to make sure that you're mentally and physically able to carry out your duties. What's the test comprised of the physical? Uh, like check your heart, measure the stress on your heart, doing treadmill tests, uh, make sure that you don't have a hernia and any any things like that. Uh, they check your blood pressure, make sure that it's uh, normal, and uh, make sure that there's no issues with like uh, breathing. When what was the result of that test? Uh, I was good, good, perfect. Clean yeah. bill of health, good to go. Ready Filled to, uh, out all the forms, gave me the clean bill of health, sent it off to the firehouse. And that, that was in early August of 2021? It was, yes. Okay. So you were fit for duty? I was fit, yep. Then uh, you gave some consideration to getting vaccinated uh, shortly after that, is that correct? Uh, well, not shortly after that. For the longest time, I was sort of speak against it. I didn't think it was safe enough. I was really terrified and nervous. I didn't want to put that in my body because I just felt it was too soon to, to take something like that without extensive testing. So I tried as long as I could not to take the vaccination. But you decided against it and you did take it? At the end, yeah, I did. It was mostly due to peer pressure, uh, the media, the medical doctors, everyone was telling me that I have to take it. Okay, so you went and got your first shot. Uh, how long after your, to put it in context for time, how long after your 
firefighter uh, physical tests did you get the first shot? Uh, the first vaccination was uh, August 16th, and I got my physical August 17th. So very, very closely together, obviously. Yes. Um, just, just for uh, for the record, the lot number would have been this is Pfizer vaccine. It was Pfizer. Yes. Yeah. Do you have the lot number in front of you? Uh, the lot number for that one was FA nine zero nine nine. Now, before you received uh, the vaccine, did uh, who who administered who administered it for you, and where did you go? The first one I got was at the drive-through setup over in Dartmouth at the Dartmouth Hospital. Okay. And you remember who gave it to you, the person or I don't, unfortunately, no. Okay, well, that, that's okay. Um, whoever administered this to you, did they, did they warn you about potential risks, side effects, benefit, benefits uh, of, getting the, of getting the vaccine? Uh, at the time, they, they briefly said some stuff. I couldn't really remember. I don't know if I was just panicky or scared. If it, it just happened so quick, and then they told me just pull over and stay stay in the parking lot for 20 minutes while someone looked after me. And how did you fare out after the first shot? Any any issues? No issues. No symptoms. Nothing. I was perfect after that. Like it didn't even happen. Wow. And then. You decide to get a set, the second shot uh, as as recommended. Yep. When was that? That was on August. No, sorry, that was September thirteenth. So roughly a month after the first shot. Yes. Give or take a few days. And that was. Well, um, it was also Pfizer. It was Pfizer. Yeah. And do you have the lot number for that in front of you? That one was FA nine zero nine one. And I'm going to ask the same thing um, as well for your second shot. Where did you go get that? Uh, that one was at the superstore. And who issued that to you? Or who gave you that? Unfortunately, that I don't know. Was it a pharmacist? It was a pharmacist, it was, yes. It was, so it was, yeah. a, it was an, uh, the pharmacist at the superstore? It was, yes. Okay. Did the pharmacist talk to you about potential risks or harms or benefits of the no, vaccine? No, nothing at all. Did you have to sign a form? I did, yeah. What, do you remember what the form said by any, any chance, or was it was it lay things out for you, or was it just a consent form to receive? It was it a from? consent form to, for them to administrate it. Yeah. You don't remember how many pages there were, what the consent form said? I do believe it was just one page, but it, but it was mostly they were like, sign it or you're not getting it. Like, we got to hurry up and move along kind of ordeal. Okay, thank you. Did you have any issues after the second shot? Uh, well, after the second vaccine, everything was same as the first. Everything was going good. No signs, no symptoms. Everything was okay, except on se September 22nd. And, and that would have been a Wednesday because I, I woke up and I was really kind of out of it. I wasn't feeling right. And I thought it was just because I was overworked at my job and Doing the training, I was just tired and sore. I was having trouble breathing. I was like, oh, it's the middle of the week. I'll, I'll just push through, see what happens. But I remember waking up that day, and it felt like someone was sitting on my chest. 
Did you do anything about that, or what, what, what did you do after that? No, I, I just played it off as, oh, I'm just getting run down with everything I've been doing at my company and at the firehouse, so I just thought, oh, I'm probably just getting a cold, or I was thinking, oh, maybe it's symptoms from the vaccine, maybe it's like, if you get a vaccine, you get like cold symptoms, I didn't really know, but I just, that day I just drank uh, a French vanilla just to warm up my lungs, to try to help myself to breathe. You know, um, Kirk, I'm just going to backtrack just momentarily. Yes. There's one question I'd like to ask as well, just in regards to what the pharmacist, the conversation you have with the pharmacist, considering you were a volunteer firefighter, uh, you know, pretty good shape, carrying heavy equipment, right, potentially having, you know, life, pulling somebody a house of a car, operating the equipment. Because given, given your age and your health, were you given the, like a personal risk assessment by the pharmacist uh, that your chance of becoming, like, to let you know what your, your chance of becoming seriously ill uh, or dying uh, should you contract COVID-19? Nothing like that. No. Nothing like that. No. Right, because you'd be one of the fitter people really around in the community at the very least because of the duties that you would have to perform. Mm -hmm. So there was no consideration given whatsoever. Nothing like that. Okay. No. Thank you. Um, so now we're going to move forward once again. So you had all these symptoms uh, that you kind of just chalked up to work-related. I'm stressed a little bit of this. So you, you carried on. You went to work that day. Yes. Can you can you tell me more? Just what happened? I guess you know throughout the day, just briefly, and then what happened after that? Well, it wasn't just that day. It was over time. I just kept thinking, oh, it's a chest cold, and it was probably within two weeks time frame of going back and forth to work and doing my training. I'm like. And I said to my partner quite a bit, I got this chest cold in my lungs, but I don't have a cough. And uh, we did some research, and she goes to a naturopath about taking elderberry. It's supposed to be good for, for your lungs. So I tried that, and it, it seemed to be okay. But it was one of the last days at work. I remember I was doing a lot of activity, and it was all day I was lifting stuff that's about 50, 60 pounds all day long. And then I just started sweating and I, I felt a really bad pain and I just couldn't catch my breath and I had to leave. Did you, did you go to the hospital right after that because of how you were feeling? No, uh, I went home and uh, I just laid down, took a nap and it seemed to, to be passing me except for the, the sore lung feeling. And I decided that night to go to the firehouse for training just because it was mostly just learning exercises. It wasn't physical hands-on. So I was like, I'll go there tonight and learn some stuff. Okay. And once you get to the fire hall, um, can you tell me what, what transpired there? Uh, yeah, it was, it was quite early as I got there because I was still kind of overwhelmed a bit. But it was basically, we're just going around at the fire trucks and checking all the storage compartments. Mm -hmm. So if there was a scene where I, where I was located, if one of the firefighters said, I need the fire axe, I'd know to go to compartment 10 on the truck to, to hand it to him. So it was just cataloging items on the truck. And then we started to do uh, the MFR, medical first response training. And the training that we we're doing that night was uh, checking blood pressure. And the first one was just the automatic where you put on, you push a button, and it just reads the, the cyst and diagnostic pressure for you automatically. But uh, I remember the fire chief uh, that night said, 
Well, if you do get a medical call, what I want you to do first is use the, the manual, the one that you... Oh, the little, little, little pump. And, yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and I said to him, well, that's, that's good, Chief, but I don't know anything about that or what to listen for, the blood coming or going. And he goes, well, since you asked about it, why don't you be the guinea pig or you be the volunteer to sit up front and show everyone? So I sat there, and one of the EMTs put the cuff on me, and his face just blanked out white. And he got right nervous, and I was like, what's wrong? And he read, he read it, and it was 157 over something. And he goes, that, that, that's really high. What I'm going to get you to do is just sit in the corner away from everybody and just try to calm down. And I'd like to read that again. So it was about 45 minutes, and then he came and got me and asked, can I do your blood pressure check again? And the second time he did it, it was 187 over something. And he goes, that doesn't seem right because you're just sitting here relaxing. And I goes, well, what do you think? And he goes, i got to get you to the hospital immediately. And I'm like, oh, well, let's not go immediately. I said, I have a pain in my lungs for a while. I think it's just a cold, and that's interfering. He's like, no, you, you're, uh, you could take a stroke or a heart attack at any second. So I remember uh, Tammy, my partner, came and picked me up and rushed me to the emergency room. And I got there, we walked in, and they asked where we vaccinated and stuff. And I was like, yeah, they took me aside. And Tammy, unfortunately, my partner, she wasn't vaccinated then. And they almost physically took her at the hospital. They wouldn't let her come in at all with me. She had to wait out in the car. And I first sat there after they, they kicked her out. And I was alone waiting for someone. Finally, the nurse came over and got me. And she put the blood pressure on me, and it read uh, 212 over 137. And all I remember is getting thrown in a wheelchair, and they dragged me off to different rooms. The first room was the EKG, and then they rolled me down to another room and said, we're just going to put you on the monitor and check everything. And then one of the nurses noticed your oxygen levels like extremely low, and I'm like, Okay, I, I didn't know that it was low. I'm just doing my thing. So another doctor came in, and they were assessing the monitors that I was hooked up to. And one of the nurses was like, oh, you just got high blood pressure because of the work you've been doing at the firehouse. Once it goes down a little bit, we'll send you on your way. You'll be fine. And I kept telling her, well, does it have anything to do with a chest cold? Because I had pain in my lungs, and it was getting quite severe. She's like, oh, no, that's just because you're doing extensive work and it's just your muscles sore. And I'm like, well, sore muscles doesn't have anything to do with my breathing. Like, I'm having trouble breathing. So the other doctor that came in the room was like, oh, yeah, we should, uh, we should look into it a little more. And he's like, I'll be right back. I'll, I'll get you prepped for some tests. And then another doctor came in, and uh, she was asking me some questions. And... I was like, yeah, I had a pain. It was almost two weeks now. And uh, it's like I, I'm having trouble breathing. And, and obviously now i got the extreme high blood pressure due to it, which I never had in my life. And she goes, oh, it fits the time frame. And I'm like, Doc, what do you mean time frame? Time frame for what, me coming in tonight? She's like, no, time frame for your vaccine. And I didn't mention anything then to the doctor. 
And I was like, well, what do you mean? She said, when did you get your vaccination? I was like, I got my second vaccination was September 13th. And she calculated in her head for a minute and she goes, oh, that's a few weeks off. That's right where that, that lines up to what, what we see. What happened after that? And I'm like, well, what do you mean what you see? And she goes, well, we're seeing people with blood clots. She goes, don't be alarmed. I'm going to do some tests with your blood and just check. And she said at the time, we're going to check for a coagulation agent in my blood. So she drew my blood. And I was nervous because when they took my blood before, it was in the cup pretty quick, the little tube. Okay. But this was like motor oil. Like it was really thick. So I was kind of sweating nervous because of that. Mm -hmm. So she came back with the tests with another doctor, and she's like, yeah, we're correct. You do have blood clotting agents in your blood. And then she said, don't worry about that. You don't have to be alarmed. Such percent of people have that, but it doesn't affect them. I'm like, well, obviously I'm being affected some way. So she goes to the other doctor, let's get you in a wheelchair, and we'll take you up to get x-rays. So I went and got a chest x-ray, and then I came back to the, to the room waiting for tests. And then another doctor I never saw came in with two other doctors, and they were talking amongst themselves, looking at the chart. And they said, yeah, we find uh, there's some stuff in your lungs. I'm like, okay. And they're like, yeah, blood clots. And then they didn't really give any other information on that. And then the other doctor that was late coming in, that was they're obviously having a little chat, said we got to get a CT scan. That's where you eject the dye into your body. So again, they threw me in a wheelchair and took me up there. And I remember as I was going up, and I was thinking to myself, well, this this is crazy. Like I was terrified. Like you go in somewhat not feeling all right, but it seems like it was getting worse as soon as I got in there. Because one of the doctors that was in the room was like, have oxygen on standby. And I'm like, oh, my lungs are going to collapse on me. I'm not going to be able to breathe. But they put me back in the room. And each time I did a test, it was two hours. And then my cell phone died. So I was in the room for altogether 15 hours without my partner. And 15, I couldn't 15 contact hours. her. They were running tests. Yeah. And... So after the doctors came back into the room, they said, the one doctor that wanted the additional tests, I can't really explain the words that he used. It's from memory, but he said... Summarize it for us. Extremely large quantity of blood clots in both my lungs. So you went from having a clean bill of health, testing to be a volunteer firefighter, everything's great, yeah. to all of a sudden severe issue with lung clots yeah. and in within weeks of receiving the second dose within two weeks of the second vaccination within, within two weeks of the second just, vaccine yeah okay what happened after that did they do further testing did they put your medication what happened no they did after they showed me the test and told me that uh my partner she was panicking finally she called every floor every office every room and one of the nurses came in and said, are you Kirk DeRosier? I'm like, yeah, your wife's trying to get in touch with you and we'll, we'll charge your phone. So they charged my phone. I, I talked to her 
And she was upset and crying, thought uh, I died because my phone died, and sure. I told her I had blood clots. No answer, yeah. No but they kept me in for another little bit, and they said, oh, you're going to be fine in a couple months. Just take the blood thinners. We'll, we'll get you in touch with hematology. Everything's going to be fine. And I knew it wasn't going to be fine because one of the doctors that was standing behind that doctor was just shaking his head like, couldn't believe that the other doctor was telling me it's going to be okay. But after I talked to my partner, she said, well, she was concerned that it had something to do then with the, the vaccine, especially when the doctor said before I even mentioned it, it's, it suits the time frame. So, so did you uh, have further tests done to see if it was, let me put it this way, do you know if the physicians that you were dealt with or your main physician there, did they enter anything into that, once again, this vaccine reporting system to CARES? Do you know? Well, that, that was it. Tammy told me to talk to them. I, I had the phone on speakerphone, and I said, well, the doctor knew, and obviously I put two and two together, just like that doctor. Like, this has something to do with the vaccine. All of a sudden, I got all these blood clots. So I asked the doctor that told me to go for the, the x-rays and the CT scan. I'm like, are you going to fill out the... Uh, the adverse reaction, that I had a reaction to the vaccine. And his words to me was like, it takes too long, we're not going to do that here. So they didn't fill out anything there. Okay. We're getting a little bit short on time, Kirk, and, and uh, there's a lot more that we would like to get to, but so I need to you know, just bring it, I need to shorten it up a little bit if we can. Yeah. What were, you know, the last, because this happened in September of 2021. We now have, we're now in March 2023, a year and a half later. What has, what have the long-term implications been on you since that incident at the hospital to today? Uh, I'm taking uh, Zeralto. It's uh, a high milligram of blood thinner, which the specialists, because said where it is affected through the vaccination. They have no idea how long I'll have to take these blood thinners, if it's only for a short period of time, or if I'll have to take it for the rest of my life. So your specialist said it is. They, they made the correlation to your blood clots to, to the vaccine? Yeah. The hematology department at the Dixon building put two and two together, filled out the forms, and sent it off to, uh, I think they said, health Canada, something like that. Okay. But I, I talked to them, I gave them the batch numbers and stuff like that. Okay. But I'm also taking now, because of that, uh, two different types of medications for high blood pressure. How has this affected your quality of life? Uh, till, till recently, I'd have to say I didn't have any quality of life. Uh, since October 19th on, I'd say for the first six months after that, my health deteriorated so bad I was bedridden for six months. Couldn't do anything. Uh, that affected my mental health. I, I ended up putting on over 70 pounds. I'm still trying to get off me because I'm not being active. Because talking too long or walking too long or doing anything, it, it, it's too much on my body. I can't breathe. My lungs are on fire. I'm sore to this day. It's like someone's sitting on me all the time. It's a long road to recovery. 
It is, yeah. Um, because we have your spouse coming up as well, I'm going to leave some of the questions that I would have for you in regards to the financial hardship. Uh, I will post those to her instead, okay? Um, uh, thank you, Kirk. Um, thank you. I'm going to see if the commissioners have any questions for you. Thank you for your testimony. Uh, just one question, and I hope you don't mind me asking. How old are you? <laughs> 43 years old. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Kirk. Just going to add in for the commissioners, uh, for for Kirk's testimony, the exhibits will be TR-18, as well as TR-18 A and B, and they will be made available to you. I just received them this afternoon. Tammy Clark, do you? Uh, uh, undertake uh, and affirm that you uh, will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I do. Thank you. Can you please tell us your name? Um, we know where you live, because of Kirk. Uh, your name and occupation, please. Uh, my name is Tammy Clark, and I'm a coordinator for Public Works. I'm, I'm going to do a continuation, really, really right from Kirk's testimony, because you're his spouse, and the significant health issues that Kirk had would have had an impact on you as well. Yes. So, how were you affected by Kirk's health issues? In, I know it's a very broad question, but how were you affected? Uh, you know, we know, we can imagine the distress you went through at the time he was at the hospital. So I'd like to focus more on the time since then. How has that impacted you and your quality of life and your relationship? Um, I had to receive a vaccine, both vaccines, after he had his blood clots in his lungs in order to keep my job. So um, I'll, 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 I'll get to that. Okay. I, I just, just one more. So just, my quality of life. Yeah, just in just general? with Kirk, and then we'll talk. I want to. I want to um, get to that. I'll wake up in the middle of the night to see if he's still breathing. I'm nervous to leave the house sometimes because I don't know if he's going to be okay. I. He's different because he doesn't socialize as much or he's not able to do the physical things that he'd like to do or talk for long periods of time. What impact does that have on, on, on you and your relationship? I feel overwhelmed. I feel anxious. I feel depressed. And I feel alone.
Jamie, who were you working for uh, when Kirk received his vaccines? Who was your employer at that time? Do you remember? The province of Nova Scotia. Yeah. In what capacity and or what, what department for the province of Nova Scotia were you working in? Education and early childhood development. Mm -hmm. When the requirement came out for the vaccine, and bearing in mind you know, that Kirk had effects from the vaccination. What were your thoughts to the vaccine requirements? I didn't want to have that vaccine. Did you reach out to your employer and see and regarding those mandates? Did you send any emails or letters? Um, no, I didn't. I just asked my um, director at the time if there was any exemptions for someone who would feel traumatized by taking a vaccine that their partner had that affected them so much. Did you send an email on November 19th uh, to the NSGEU asking the union not to mandate vaccines? I did. What was the response to that? They said as long as the employer has a policy that clearly states what they're going to do about vaccines, that that was all they were going to require. The contract that you have with the province and your role with the Department of Education? that have any mention of vaccination requirements? It did not. Okay. What was the reason given by your employer for requiring employees to be vaccinated? So that we didn't spread COVID-19 to others. Just gonna think about what specifically was your role within the Department of Education? I know you said educator, but can you be a bit more specific? Can you elaborate on that a little, please? Uh, I was a coordinator for the transcripts and international programs. I was only dealing with the people in my group and there was three of us all together and no members of the public whatsoever. So the, the, you had three of you working together as a group in an office setting? Yes, an office of three to four hundred people approximately. Uh, but how many for you, you said in a group of three? Just three for us in my division specifically. Okay. Including myself. Including you. Um, so there was really no reason given for them why they required the, the vaccination other than nothing at all? No, no reason, just that you need to get this done? It was just so that we don't get COVID-19 or spread it to people around us. And that we are civil servants, so we are the people who um, the province would look to for direction, I suppose. Okay. Did you seek an accommodation for a vaccine? I know, I know you sent an email off to the NSGEU regarding asking them not to implement the, uh, the mandates, but did you send any correspondence or asking them for an accommodation? No. I, how, how come? 
I had people who I knew that were in my department and otherwise that had asked for accommodations, well, an exemption um, to the vaccine for religious reasons and reasons that were much worse than mine, heart conditions and things like that, and they were all denied. So I didn't bother to go that route. So no accommodations or, or exemptions at that point then, you thought? No. So you felt you had choice in regards to getting a vaccination for your employment? My choice was either be vaccinated or be unemployed with no income. Which route did you choose? I chose to be vaccinated. How did you feel about that decision? I felt like my autonomy was taken away. I felt like I didn't have the freedom to choose what chemicals were in my body. And I felt like I was taking a drug that hadn't been tested and that I could die or have something that's long-term like Kirk. So you were scared? Oh, yeah. Yeah. How long after, I guess to put it in perspective, with Kirk's health issues, did you go through this? How long did I go through? Like when uh, we knew Kirk had health issues, side effects. How long uh, into his side effects, into his health issues, before you had to make a decision to get vaccinated? Is this early on after his vaccine injury? It was about a month. About a month. Yeah. So quite, quite fresh. So in November, I had to be vaccinated with my first vaccination. And his... Um, condition was diagnosed in October, October 19th. So weeks, yeah, barely. Mm -hmm. Do you remember where you got the vaccine? Yes, at the Independent Grocer in Hubbard's, Nova Scotia. <coughs> Do you remember who administered it to you? Sadiv. I don't know her name, but I could find it. I think there's only a staff of under five there. Perhaps, do you know what her role is? Is it a pharmacist? A nurse? Pharmacist. Pharmacist. Mm -hmm. uh, were you advised of any risks? Yes, I don't remember what they were. It was a short thing that they sort of did. I think it may have been a page. It was quite quick. And uh, mm -hmm. your choice was either say yes or don't have the vaccine. Just like Kirk, um, you know, you're a young lady. Given you age and your health, uh, they had to do a personal risk assessment on you from the pharmacist's perspective in terms of a need of a COVID vaccine. No. Um, I do remember filling out a form prior to getting the vaccine that was a government form asking if I had any autoimmune issues. And I did tell them that I have Graves' disease. but. They knew that, so I informed the pharmacist without prompting that I have that. And she said I was fine, good to go. No issues? No. Okay. Um, do you remember which date you received the vaccines? Um, I received my vaccine on November, t the first one, November 24th, 2021. Do you have the lot number with you as well? Yes, it's FF. Five one zero nine. Did you have any symptoms, any signs, anything going on after your vaccine? 
I felt traumatized by the vaccine, so it would be anxiety and, um, yeah. Any side effects from the vaccination other than the mental health side, the anxiety, the depression, potential? No. Thank you. And uh, you went and you had to take a second vaccine as well. I did. In order to go back to work again, I needed a second vaccination. And you received that when? January 18th, 2022. Do you have to lot number for that as well, please? Same. FF5109. Same lot number. It twice. was. Bottom. Six weeks apart. Uh, any, any signs or symptoms regarding the second vaccination? Other than the feelings of anxiety and trauma, no. Tammy, we only have a few minutes left, but I want to—I want—I I want to dig just two things because I cannot imagine what you went through. So, what can, can you? How did it make you feel having to go to your employer, having to go get a vaccination, knowing that your your spouse had a significant vaccine injury, and your employer was unwilling to listen, and nor apparently was the province. How did that make you feel? Horrible. I feel like there's no trust. I feel like there's a broken system and I am just a number. I don't feel like there's a human side of things and there was an agenda and it was just the agenda and not me. And um, yeah. How were you guys affected financially by all this? Because Kirk is not able to work at this point in time. But I, wa I wanted to be, you know what, we'll run over, that's okay. Um, he had to go on unemployment insurance at first, and then in between unemployment insurance and um, the benefits from his workplace for disability, there was 120 days of no income whatsoever for Kirk. And... Um, for me, I was on short-term illness as long as I could be through my employer, um, but then it would go down to 70% and I was able to, I had to go back to work at that point. So um, we've had to determine which bills to pay, um, if we can afford to eat the same way, and if we can visit our family in Cape Breton because we can't afford gas. Just lots of decision-making that we never had to make before. You've been able to find employment a little closer since then. Has the situation improved over the last little while? Is there a light at the end of the tunnel for you? I'm closer to my home so I don't worry for Kirk as much and there now that I have a new employer I um, feel like they understand that sometimes I have to work from home if Kirk isn't feeling well because I just want to make sure that I can take him to the hospital if he needs to go um, so yeah I feel like it's a more positive workplace so you have an employer that actually accommodated your needs. Yes. Okay. We are slightly over time, so um, 
I'll stop my questions now, but I'll see if the commissioners have any questions. Tammy, thank you very, very much. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Commissioners, that concludes the evidence for uh, this first stage of three days of hearings here in Truro, Nova Scotia. There will be uh, the next uh, segment of hearings is going to take place March 30th to April 1st in Toronto, Ontario. And in total, there will be uh, nine sessions of the National Citizens Inquiry. And I just remember, I just remind everyone folks in the room and everyone watching out there, those who may hear about the proceedings on social media or otherwise through their networks. This is a national citizen's inquiry. It's about you and it's for you. It is your inquiry. It therefore requires your interest. It's it's working for you. It's working to vindicate you. It's working to give you a voice but it also requires your support. And I know that we all here at the National Citizens Inquiry thank you for all the support given so far, and we will need more as we travel across the country. I, commissioners, uh, you did ask me um, to make a very short uh, set of concluding remarks here, or summation based on the three days of hearing, and I'll, I'll do that. And the way I'd uh, pull this together is we heard basically uh, three major themes coming out. One is fear, the other is truth, and the third I would call safety. And there's some overlap between fear and truth as themes because what we've heard about is <clears throat> that the truth has been perverted and sometimes outright lies told. <coughs> outright lies have been told, big lies. Uh, but there are also smaller lies <coughs> involved with exaggerating data. For example, uh, there's Linda Adshade's testimony. She had access uh, on a, a, a frequent basis, weekly basis, to the uh, spreadsheets reporting the positive testing. And remember, the testing at 40 cycles, like you're getting a lot of false positives there. So. Even the testing results were, in a sense, a lie to start with. But even built on top of that lie, she discovered was a 25 to 30 percent larger lie because what public health and the authorities were reporting to the public was exaggerated beyond what was stated in black and white in their own data on their own spreadsheet. That's lying. Uh, fear. Jordan Peterson. He told us that our leaders panicked and adopted repressive authoritarian Chinese model for how to deal with this apparently new virus that was on the go. They adopted an authoritarian communist model of how to deal with it out of panic and fear. 
And then they use fear to manipulate public opinion, to impose tyranny. Those are his words. And commissioners, I submit to you that what we've heard from many people in these hearings in the last three, three days shows us that this tyranny imposed from above by the leadership of the country, provincial, federal, uh, resolved itself into smaller group tyrannies, group cruelties, and group punishments in the workplace and even in hospital emergency rooms and in the healthcare setting where that should never, ever occur. We've heard from Shelley Hipson her work extracting or crowbarring or uh, somehow or other extracting data from various government departments that COVID hospitalizations, contrary to what we were told, that the hospitals were under tremendous pressure from COVID cases, that they were no more than 1% of all hospitalizations. We've heard continual anecdotal evidence from the physicians who testified that they were waiting for COVID cases and went for stretches even for two, a year and a half or two years, no COVID patients. Yet we were told something different, weren't we? Why was that? Because the authorities wanted to perpetuate and inculcate fear in the public, in the citizens, in you. And to use that fear, as Peterson said, to use that fear to impose tyranny, tyranny on Canadians. There were many uh, smaller untruths or manipulations of the truth. Uh, for example, one you could call the sucker punch. And we heard a, a teacher today, Katrina Burns, uh, she was told um, by her school board, even if you were entitled to, uh, uh, to obtain a, an exemption, we still wouldn't give it to you. Now, on safety, I have to wrap this up, commissioners, because it's late in the day and it's on a Saturday. But very briefly, Dr. McCullough told us 17,000 deaths are recorded in VIRS. And of course, VIRS, he also indicated, and others have, have said, and it's generally known that VIRS only records a small percentage of the total actual number of adverse events get reported to VIRS. That's the U.S. database for adverse events. And he told us that five, 10, no more than 50 uh, deaths. And even a large vaccine program in the past has been deemed not safe and not effective and withdrawn and withdrawn. And yet we have in the United States alone 17,000 deaths. That doesn't include uh, for the most part, it doesn't include Canada or countries outside the United States. And commissioners, we stopped AstraZeneca at one serious adverse event in 55,000. One in 55,000. 
we heard from an expert who, whose reanalysis of the data in the Pfizer and Moderna trials turned up a 1 in 550 ad serious adverse event rate. 1 in 550, and yet AstraZeneca was withdrawn at 1 in 55,000. What is going on here, and where are the heads of our leaders? Do they know what safety means? And yet they continue the rollout and the promotion of the mRNA product. But not just that. We heard from Dr. Brayton, and she called it abhorrent, I'm quoting her words, abysmal, the quality assurance and quality control systems in place or non-systems in place for the manufacture of these injectable products, the mRNA products. Not are they, they're not just deficient in complete RNA, they're heavily contaminated with truncated mRNA, double-stranded DNA, circular plasmids, which are replication competent, in other words, they can reproduce themselves, potential, potentially, uh, potential endotoxin-producing E. coli, and DNA with a high rate uh, or potentially entering the human genome through cells in particular with high rates of division. Now, I don't know about you out there, but to me, that sure doesn't sound like something people should be getting injected into their bodies, abhorrent and abysmal quality-controlled substances with unresolved issues, untested issues, and potential horrific consequences, not just in this generation, but in succeeding generations. And so, commissioners, after three days of evidence, this is where we are, and this is where the evidence rests. We'll hear more, I'm sure, in Toronto. Hopefully, we'll hear from the authorities, because we've sent out summonses to them, the public health officers, the politicians, those who've been telling us and repeating the safe and effective mantra for how long now? Years. We've asked them to come and explain themselves and explain why this is safe and effective and why they did the various things that they did. Why they perpetuated mask mandates, which by the way are still in effect, we've been told, in hospitals here in Nova Scotia and a vaccine mandate still in effect to work in hospitals here in Nova Scotia, which everyone now admits, including the makers of the vaccines, do not halt transmission or infection. Why? Commissioners, on the face of the evidence we've heard so far, this is madness. I rest. Thank you so much for listening to this broadcast of the National Citizens Inquiry. It's so important to get the testimonies of Canadians out there, so please share on all your channels and invite your friends and family to listen in. As always, you can head over to nationalcitizensinquiry.ca to sign our petition and find out more on how you can take personal responsibility. From the National Citizens Inquiry, thank you. The world is watching. <laughs>